players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Wild in the cattle, Curd Ape, Goblin Guide, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. It's episode 11 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. My name is Anurag Das, and I'm here with Brian Cook and Wilson Hunter. How's it going, guys? What? What? Hello, friends. We have an exciting episode today. Spoiler alert, it's Mail Day. Pretty excited for this episode. I've been looking forward to it for, forward to it for a few weeks now. The idea suddenly dawned upon me when I realized we're sort of running out of topics and then we got this in my mind. I don't know. I had some pretty good mail this week. I got four Japanese foil Echo of Aeons in the mail coming back from getting signed. I was pretty excited to slide them right into the epic storm. Is that what we're going to talk about? That, that could be one of the few things we talk about in terms of mail day. I actually was able to collect two things. I got my Japanese foil Arkham Astro Labs and my Japanese foil Veil of Summers. That was pretty exciting. Something about mail day that just always makes me pretty, pretty excited. But before we even continue this, you know what we do at the beginning of every episode. Brian, what's been going on in your life? How are you doing? Wilson, same question to you and then last to me. I've actually been playing a lot of Magic Online recently. I've been jamming the list that I won the Legacy Challenge with. I've been calling it version 7.5. And I've reached a new milestone since I started tracking data. I've actually played 7.5 more than any other Epic Storm list in that period. I'm somewhere around 390 matches with this exact 75. So it's kind of cool for me personally. How's the list been performing for you? Not bad. A couple percentage points higher than most Epic Storm lists. So I've been happy with that. But I've started testing a newer list that's just slightly different. I wanted to try a couple of different configurations. So so just for context, though, this is the list that has like the defense grids in the main deck? Yes. Okay, sorry. I don't speak Epic the Epic Storm deck list code. So just want to make sure that I also understand. That one is a very scary list to play against. Defense grid is really good against counter walls. It is, but it's not very good against these uh, current four-color decks with Thoughtseize in them. So trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Yeah, grow, evolve, adapt. Wilson, how about you? What have you been up to? Whoa, whoa. I wasn't done. I have a list of things here I wanted to cover. Yeah, go ahead. Rushing me. Rushing. There's a couple of site openings on the EpicStorm.com. We are currently looking for an editor and a video motion graphics person. So if you're interested in that, head over to the Epic Storm. Check out our site openings. And our the last thing was we've previously been talking about from the vault games had a 2k on uh, july 13th we were hoping to get 50 players so that way we could bump it up to a two and a half k and unfortunately did not happen we got 44 players the owner was very happy i had a couple people tell me that they only heard about the 2k because of the podcast and they ended up coming out so super thankful to everyone that made it and uh one last little dig fantasy baseball my team is currently nine and a half games above wilson's Hey, how are the Mets doing? No comment. All right, let's keep it civil in here, boys. Uh, Wilson, how about you? What have you been up to? How have you been doing? 
I have been dieting. So this is day three of a fairly intensive purge to my diet. And I feel a, a bit like a prisoner of war right now. I feel like my body is, is eating itself from the inside out. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little lightheaded. So you guys may see me, not the listeners, but my two co-hosts see me drinking something out of a can. It is actually just fizzy water. And uh, that's the closest thing I have to um, something that's not regular water in my life right now. So that's what we're calling Bush Light. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of diet are you partaking in? So it's, there's this, it's a diet program. I'm not going to say it right now because I don't know. I don't want people to like look this up and then I don't know. It just sort of feels weird. But basically I have this one lean and green meal per day and then five of these healthy tiny little snacks Basically, I just have to devour my lean and green meal, which is a pile of vegetables and some sort of unsatisfying lean meat. But it's, it's going to be good. It'll make me healthier, hopefully give me more energy for my startup, my family, and most importantly, this podcast. Wilson, I think that you look beautiful just as how you are. And uh, I want to let James Shu tell you that you need to lose weight. You're an attractive man. Yeah, I do have to say I, I get sort of fat shamed by my startup co-founder he's been trying to get me to go on a diet for a while so here it is james and i know he listens to this so thanks james it's just really awkward in humans of magic when he's talking to other people and he's like don't you think wilson hunter should lose weight in the middle of his episodes wait has he has that happened okay so another thing in my life is that i am i'm banned from my local pinball arcade and that's sort of giving me withdrawals. Wait, no, Anurag, you know about this. I told you about this. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. I thought this was like another pinball arcade. I was oh, like, I actually, I know about this as well. You left a bad review, and then they Facebook stalked you. That's right. So I left, I wouldn't even call it a bad review. I left a medium review on a, on a pinball website that basically said they need to, to fix their pinball machines that happen to be my favorite machines. And when I came in to play next time, they said... They basically told me that I can't play there anymore because I left them this bad review for their business. And also the owner messaged me all this long stuff sort of blasting me. So it's really sad because I like pinball. I wasn't trying to hurt their feelings. I just really wanted them to fix their Star Wars pinball machine that I really like to play that the left flipper kept getting stuck every time I go in. But with a diet and limited pinball, let's just say that uh, I'm feeling a little cranky the last couple days. But... Trying to get over it. I mean, hopefully the Braves will start winning here in baseball. They've, they've also been playing poorly. So I'm sorry. I'm, I'll, I'll try not to be a downer. I'm really excited about this episode. So Yeah, sorry about the slump you're going through. Uh, on my end, just a quick change of pace. I've also been playing a lot of Magic Online. I've been testing a lot of this new Arkham's Astrolabe card. It just recently put a bunch of copies in the, in the top eight of the Star City games in Philadelphia. Daryl Ayers and then a couple other players were also handling that card and honestly i've been having a blast i don't remember the last time i've been this excited to play uh, another deck red and six and my special tech lonely sandbar has been phenomenal just drawing all the cards every turn all the turns it's been pretty good and i'm trying to figure out like the kinks behind the deck there are a lot of problems that need to be smoothed out but that's sort of the 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 journey behind creating and playing a new deck and figuring out how to make it Good. I think that definitely has potential. We'll probably talk about this more later, but Arkham's Astrolab is a very powerful card. Renin 6 is a very powerful card. So look forward to that. Let's talk about uh, donations. You guys are great. 
Since the last episode, we got a flurry of new donations. Number one, Dick Fisher. This is like the fourth time in a row that we've gotten donations, right, from Dick? Thanks, Dick. Dick, you are great. Thank you so much for your support. And also, I want to give a shout out to Frankie Rodriguez, aka True Nightmare, Simon Hillbrands, Eli David, Travis Parsley, aka uh, The Legacy Pit on Twitch, Gabriel Rabin, Matthew Vuk, and Matt Abraham. Thank you guys so much for your support. We actually desperately need your donations now that we've actually hired a full-time, I guess, editor. Well, don't make it seem like we're beggars. We appreciate donations. Oh, yeah. We, we, we're classic. We appreciate your donations. No, but seriously, shout-outs also to Phil Blackman for editing all of our episodes. It saves us a lot of time, and this is what your donations go towards. He does a fantastic job. Last week, or last episode, he spent like seven, eight hours on, on the podcast, and that was absolutely insane. If you guys have any feedback in any department, always let us know because, well, you know, we want to make a better product uh, that you guys enjoy and can look forward to every week. So phase two of the, the quick hits, as we call it, is the feedback. So let's take a look at some of the recent comments that we've gotten. Comment number one comes from listener Riley Yeekel. Hi, guys. I've really been enjoying the podcast so far. I really liked Bryant's Heart of Europe story for leveling up Tess in Episode 10 as an example of test of testing previously dismissed cards in new metas. That was, a, that was a good story. That was a good story. I like that story. Brian's drawn-out sections were my personal favorites. Like Wilson, I thought Anurag did a great job on a topic he's not too familiar with. Shout out to Phil's great editing, too. Especially enjoyed the random things like the long drawn-out applauses. And this is by Nicholas Wong. I am going to second that. I've always wanted to... Like, just take our podcast and, like, throw in random effects in there just to make it funnier or, you know, just to add flavor. And, I mean, the whole editing process was so long and I just never had time to get to that. So, props to Phil. And, um, yeah, Nicholas, thank you so much for the positive feedback. Not going to lie, I am not a combo expert by any means. I think in my resume, I have about nine months of show and tell that we don't talk about. That's about it. And then uh, the next comment is by Julian Nab. Uh, aka the host of the uh, other podcast i forget what it's called bryant mentioned the philosophy of banning the enabler over the broken stuff which has generally more or less been their take for both legacy and vintage with the exception of enablers that are considered pillars of the format like brainstorm bazaar workshop hot take of the week survival was one of the biggest pillars of the format when it was banned for enabling something without a doubt busted However, what it did, I don't consider much more busted than Gristlebrand. That's a really good point. I do like that we are looking at things in the scope of Gristlebrand because that is the de facto go-to, right? Like everything has to be either at parity with or more broken than Gristlebrand to be successful. Spoiler alert, Gristlebrand still happens to be the most broken thing. Putting a 7-7 lifelinker that draws seven cards into play is just absurd. If Gristlebrand were ever to get banned, what does the new comparison, like, what does it become? Does it go back to being LED, Lion's Eye Diamond? I could definitely see that. Lion's Eye Diamond is also a pretty broken card. I'm not sure, like, what was what was life like before Gristlebrand, right? Like, we were putting, what, Progenitus and Emrakul into play? Like, that's not... Jingataxis? Yeah, that doesn't really seem like it's good enough, especially since, like, the rest of the format has... Somewhat creeped up in terms of power level. Dice the source of plowshares, Caracas, Pyroblast, shut down by Narset. That is actually a good point in terms of 
sort of exploring the format. I did forget to mention earlier, one thing that I'm doing on my stream this week and like in the upcoming weeks is with a couple of other legacy grinders that you might know, for example, we've got, you know, EW Landon, we've got White Faces, we've got Stefanog, so many, you know, people you'll frequently see on Twitch streaming. We're doing this thing called Legacy Unchained, which is where we take the, the legacy ban list and we just take a couple items off of it and we're just like, hey, what would legacy look like if you could play four of these? in your deck and some of the things that were, you know, the list that I've played so far. So some of the cards that are unbanned actually. So Mana Drain is unbanned, Gitaxian Probe, Deathrite Shaman, Mind Twist, and my favorite, Sensei's Divining Top. Oh, Dig Through Time. It's been pretty fun. I had my first testing session, I think it was last night or the day before. Uh, and it was really cool because I got to play High Tide with Frantic Search and I got to play Enchantress with Earthcraft. I think my next project is going to be Arclight Phoenix and Gitaxian Probe. That's probably going to be actually just absurd. I think the best deck in this format, without a doubt, is going to be the Hermit Druid combo decks. Actually, you know what? That's kind of funny. I did play against the Hermit Druid combo deck with Enchantress, but it was a weird iteration of... It wasn't like all-in combo. It was like mid-rangey combo, like... Like a Deathrite Shaman into Leovold with the backup of, hey, I could just kill you on turn two. Um, it was an interesting build. But that's the cool part about it, right? You get to see so many different takes on all these broken cards and how they would fit in Legacy and things like that. So looking forward to to seeing that play out over the next few weeks. Uh, you can definitely check out the MinMax blog. There's an article on that website that has a uh, more descript description about the, the program. And then lastly... We have a piece of feedback submitted by Matt Vuk, who is a donator. And also, I think they won one of the Legacy Opens a while ago with Four Color Loam in Baltimore somewhere. Uh, but Matt had just recently listened to a couple episodes and said, The podcast is one of the most thought-provoking of any Magic podcast I've listened to, and each of you is very articulate on your positions. That is so nice. Yes, th thank you, Matt. And I, I, I definitely could not have not read this part out. So, while Dreadhorde Arcanist... The London Mulligan and Legacy Combo decks were kind of discussed somewhat separately. I think there is a lot of overlap in how I think these topics will shape Legacy going forward. When you were all talking about the London Mulligan, you all mentioned how you thought it would speed up the format either from people's decks actually functioning or people expecting faster combo decks to get better. I think the fact that both of these cards, being Dreadhorde Arcanist and Renin Six, are so cheap and generate value early in the game that it requires the format to be faster, such that the London Mulligan doesn't disproportionately benefit combo decks only. That's a really interesting take that I hadn't actually thought about. Though the fair decks are technically getting a little bit more popular, which means if you look at it in terms of um, relative gain, I guess the combo decks aren't really gaining as much as other decks. So good insight. I really like it. And um, honestly, I'm not going to lie. He actually sent us a giant like essay, like a novel, a short story. And we had to pick out, you know, the, the, the best parts of it. And it's a really, really valid point. I like it a lot. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Before we jump into section one, I had a couple things I wanted to mention. Like Anorak, I've been testing Arkham's Astrolab this week in a list that I've been calling Snowstorm. Uh, it's basically just TES without Rite of Flames, even though Rite of Flame is from Cold Snap and doesn't make snow mana, unfortunately. But I've been trying two Snow Basics and Arkham's Astrolabs to turn on my four copies of Mox Oval. It's super fun, but uh, I have noticed that it's really awkward when you play Ad Nauseam or Echo of Aeons and then draw a bunch of cards and can't get Hellbent because you have an Astrolab in your hand. Or if you're like ready to combo on the next turn, then you accidentally draw an Astrolabe or Astrolab, however you say it. So uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be good enough, but it's been super fun. 
Yeah, the requirement for snow mana is actually a lot more. I mean, it's pretty free, but like it's not completely free. Like, you know, Chrome Mox not being able to generate snow mana is probably something that you're not terribly happy about. Hey, when are people going to start playing the card Cold Snap to metagame against you guys on Magic Online? I don't believe that's a real card. We actually talked about a lot of like weird random snow cards. Apparently there's like a... There's Avalanche. Yeah, there's Avalanche. There was a snow artifact that's like Sack of Snowland and then Prevent All Damage. That was be, be like a fog that you could... I don't know, that like you can use with Ren and Six to keep you know mitigating or fogging every turn or something like that. I don't know. That, that, that one's the one... That's the only snow card that actually piqued my curiosity can i read cold snap to you yeah it is a white enchantment for two colorless and one white actually i guess it's too generic is the correct way of saying that nowadays during each player's upkeep cold snap deals one damage to that player for each snow covered land he or she controls with a cumulative upkeep of two color two generic mana wow i guess if if astrolab actually becomes wait so it deals damage for Astrolab as well? You say snow permanent, not snow land? It says it says land. Oh, okay, okay. Unplayable. Some of the uh the newer templating, like Dead of Winter, like Dead of Winter also counts Astrolab as a snow permanent, to, so it deals an extra point of damage, so. What about Cold Steel Heart? It's a snow artifact. Taps for mana. We could uh start playing Scred. Yeah. I am surprised that uh there's no, like, legacy version of Scred. We'll never kill anything larger than a 3-3, but it'll be sweet. <laughs> All right, so section one today, we are talking about... Ching, You've got mail! Uh, so last at the end of the last episode and, you know, the episode before that, we did poll for user questions, and you guys delivered. So thank you so much for that. You guys sent us... So many questions that we're actually a little bit afraid we won't be able to get to them all, but we've sort of condensed the questions and extrapolated the the actual, you know, the questions that are you're asking. There are some pretty cool stories in here that we might also touch on, but uh, let's let's uh, get to the first question. It's this question. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Can I add to that, Anurag? I want to let our listeners understand and, and know here that we have show notes that are 10 pages long with essentially no spacing on most of these pages. So it's just 10 pages of massive blocks of text. So that is to say that when we read your question, if you submitted a question and you find us skipping some colorful commentary or, or different things that you said, please do not be offended. We're just trying to get through all of it and answer as directly as possible. That was really kind of you and very elegantly said. Okay, cool. So question one, this is uh, from Frederick who says, greetings from Denmark. Woo! Okay, I just want to say Denmark is a wonderful place, and we really appreciate our Northern European listeners. But go on, on road. That was the end of the question, and the end of the episode. Thank you for joining, everybody. We'll catch you on the... I'm just kidding. So, Frederick <laughs> is asking, what are your thoughts on the survivability of Paper Legacy? Will the player pool grow, and is there any hope for a format that is as expensive as Legacy? Yes, you could play budget decks like Death and Taxes, but if it's not your style of deck, you probably won't enjoy it. I just have to say, I, I love the the subtle the subtle dagger here at Death and Taxes. Even though, I mean, it may not have been meant to be a dagger. It, it has become a budget deck with some of the reprintings of, of the various cards. I remember when Rishadon Port used to be 250 tickets on Magic Online, and that was what people would complain about a lot and then like a couple of years later tabernacles like a three thousand dollar card and so the times have certainly changed but to answer your question frederick i think paper magic will be 
fine. And in the notes, I've put fine in quotes. So what I mean to say by this is that I'm not sure if it's going to explode in popularity. I just, you know, for the, some of the reasons that you mentioned, that's probably just not possible. But I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think like, and by that, I mean, it's probably just going to stay about where it is and just like gradually increase, not stay where it is and like then start to decrease. And um, it is it is true that legacy is cost prohibitive. But I feel like with the recent printings of many cards, and I know you're addressing like, you know, some budget decks you might not necessarily like, but I do feel like there are a slew of new decks that have like entered the format that are actually very competitive and reasonably cheap to build. So you mentioned Death and Taxes as one of the budget options. I also think there are decks like Blue Red Delver, which is probably one of the best Delver decks in the format right now. You've got your Black Green Golgari Depths, which is, I think, a very good anti-meta selection that very, very well preys on, you know, a lot of the tier one decks. Um, and even a deck like Blue White Miracles, which you can, you know, theoretically build with a very minimal number of duels. These are all players that are pretty good in the format right now. And that, for that reason, like, I think the format is still, it's not like, you know, absolutely unaccessible. You know, this is the time period that I think Legacy is actually the most fun that it's been in a long time. The most competitive for, you know, more than just a handful of decks that it's been in a long time. I know in a couple of previous episodes, Wilson has said it, Bryant has said it, I've said it. I think Legacy is a really good spot right now. And even online, I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, share that sentiment. And I'm seeing a lot of people say, you know what? We don't really like the way Modern is looking. You know, we want to play Legacy. How do we get in? So it, there very clearly is interest. And I think the recent developments in the format have made it, if anything, more accessible, more likely to grow. Yeah, this is a difficult question because it's impossible to give a crystal ball answer that I'm confident giving, but I like what Anurag said there. I think that as long as people are enjoying the game, enjoying the format, there's not going to be a reason for anything bad to happen to it, and it will probably gradually grow. I think we've seen some interesting changes with new cards that keep things fresh enough which is the pace that legacy players like. You know, they don't like the the fast pace of, of standard and having to totally change decks all the time and everything. But freshening up every now and then I think keeps everybody happy and that is happening, which is good. I think that the one thing that'll affect legacy in the long run is potentially the demographic changes of the players. So as people sort of age and get into different stages of their life, I think we'll see if the how the competitive scene adjusts to that. And if younger players pick up the mantle, or if it just becomes sort of an older player's format as the players that have been playing it the last decade continue to. So so I actually have an interesting thought regarding that. I know that Star City Games has been doing a pretty good job of having, you know, a number of legacy tournaments, uh, mostly like lumped up in their, in their team constructed series. But I do know that there is, you know, a large population of the younger crew that, you know, does very well in the the Star City game circuit. So I'm looking at, for example, like Team Lotus Box, for example. You know, they they play very much in the in the Star City circuit. Legacy is actually a pretty critical part to that circuit. So I don't know. That that sort of is an optimistic note. I will counter that with um a somewhat questionable note. And maybe I'll even throw a question at Brian. What do you think about MTG Arena and the impact impact that Arena will have on the legacy format, especially like with wizards. I don't really know. It's hard for me to, you know, guesstimate where their 
brain space is at regarding, you know, esports and things like that. Anurag, that was literally the most perfect segue you could give me because I was going to talk about it even if you didn't set me up. There's been a lot of fear recently with competitive play and the future of Magic the Gathering as a whole. And a lot of people fear that Grand Prix or Magic Fest might be going away in the 2020 season. There's been a lot of questions that haven't been answered. Wizards has been very secret about what they're doing with the pro community and things like that over the last year. Like, there's no real answers. And a lot of people are starting to think it's because they're fearing. And I don't know if this will happen. This is just what I've read that maybe the pro scene will go away and it's going to become more arena-based, so these mythic invitational sort of events. And what does this mean for paper? Maybe prices could go down, what happens to our favorite formats, things like that. Well, my opinion is that Legacy, for the most part, aside from some years in like 2011 to 2013 where Star City was really propping up Legacy every weekend, Legacy's for the most part, always been a grassroots format where the players have created their own events, uh, dating back from the days where Virginians used to drive up to New York and people from uh, northern New York used to drive down to Virginia and things like that. Uh, then we have things like the Leaving a Legacy 3K series or Eternal Extravaganza, uh, things like this. Legacy players have always been propping up the format in great ways. So even if Paper Magic does quote-unquote die or slow down due to the rise of Arena, I don't think companies like Star City Games are ever going to let that happen because they have so much money invested into physical paper where I think you're going to be able to find paper tournaments wherever you want to. It just might not be as easy as it is right now. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I do feel like that you're right. The legacy player base definitely does love the format. I mean, personally speaking, I I get it. Legacy is not going to be as competitive as standard just because the, the prize pool isn't actually there. But you can tell by the way that players are, for example, like hosting things like LPL, just completely free content, you know, the Legacy Premier League. But it's, it's you know, it's competitive. It's designed to be entertaining. Um, and it is community driven. You've got Legacy Unchained, that sort of thing, right? Like you mentioned, Extravaganza. You've got, you know, even in, in the Baltimore area, I know MTG First was just doing massive Legacy tournaments on a monthly basis, even at like, you know, a, not it was not, a, it was like at a loss or something like that. Like, you know, the community... The legacy community, I think, is just out there. They're insane. They're great. So for that reason, I think we're in a good spot. Nothing to be worried about. Cool. What about our uh, next question from, whoa, Sir Dick Fisher. I've been trying to learn lands, and I've been struggling identifying my role in each matchup. How do you properly identify the role you need to take in each matchup, and how do you apply that to sideboarding? Okay, so specifically for lands. This is a very wide open question. It's also a really hard question, Dan. It's a good question. I think it goes down to like the fundamentals of magic. Uh, it's like, who's the beat down is the most generic way you could look at this. Are you the control deck in this matchup or are you the aggro deck? And how do you determine that? It's something that you gain with a lot of experience. And I'm not sure it's just like an X matchup. You're always the beat downer and Y matchup. You're always the control because that can change on a game to game basis sometimes. Uh, so it's something that's like more based on intuition, in my opinion, and gut feel more than anything else. But you can apply it to some matchups in general, uh, but it's not always true. So, for example, I know that some ad nauseum tendrils players claim that they're the control deck against miracles. Uh, I would argue that they're the beatdown, but that can shift based on mulligans, hands, things like that. Yeah, I guess maybe one example 
that I can use from my personal experience. And and I, I do think you can sort of theory craft uh, this sort of stuff to a certain degree, but obviously you're going to have to get some games in to back your data up at some point. I think maybe before I even get into what I'm going to say is a homework assignment for you could be, you know, maybe pick a matchup or two that you're interested in uh, sort of thinking about. Give us what your opinions are and how that matchup would play out or identify how you would identify your role and pick a matchup that you're not necessarily familiar with. And then we could take a look at it. I can, you know, ask a couple friends, you know, like Jarvis or who who else is like, yeah, just, you know, some of the lands gurus out there, what they would uh, say, like their own thoughts. And then maybe they could also sort of even help look at your calculation process. But the matchup that I want to talk about maybe is like lands versus haha miracles. Um, this is a really interesting matchup. And I think there are a couple critical cards in the matchup that matter a lot. When you think about the purpose of the lands deck, right? I think one of its biggest advantages is that it's a deck that can very easily interact with mana, right? You've got cards like Mox Diamond and Exploration to explode your own mana. You've also got cards like Rishadon Port, Ghost Quarter, and Wasteland to minimize your opponent's mana, right? So why is the Miracles matchup interesting? And I think that's because, well, I think it's interesting because the mana base for a Miracles deck is not really like any other deck where you've got so many basics in the deck up to like six, seven, eight, or nine. And um, your normal plans of interacting with their mana are definitely not as, as effective as they would be against a deck like Delver, where, you know, they've only got duels, so your wastelands are especially good. So in this sort of matchup, you want to try and figure out, you know, my plan is to do this. What is the best way that I can do this? This is how my opponent is trying to mitigate my plan. Okay, cool. Um... So you look at maybe card choices in your decks, for example, if like the difference between Rishadon Port and the difference between playing Ghost Court, it matters a lot in the matchup. For example, if you're playing Rishadon Port, I guess you could argue that you have a little bit more inevitability in the matchup, which means that, you know, you could probably take it uh, a little bit slower. You can play a little bit more control-oriented, whereas if you were playing a card like Ghost Quarter, you know, which is not necessarily as good against basic planes, you know, which is probably one of the more important cards, um... Then you may have to like pick up the pace, take a couple more calculated risks, that sort of thing, right? So I think the critical thing that I'm trying to get at is look at some of the 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 key um, pillars of each matchup, identify how you attack them, what your opponent is doing to mitigate your attack, and then even things that I mentioned, like you know, like for example, inevitability. That means that you can play a little bit more, uh, like in the control role, or you know, things things like that. See see all the this is kind of like a weird way to say it, but like take take a look at the big picture and then use that sort of to make a, a couple more of the the nuanced decisions and things like that. Kind of like what Brian is saying, you know, who's the, who's the beatdown? Hey, why is Ghost Quarter bad against basic planes? Uh, I think it is easier to obfuscate the ghost uh, the basic planes when you are playing against Ghost Quarter. Uh, you're able to search up duels a little bit more easily, and if they do get Ghost Quartered, you can always. Uh, search up the planes. I mean, I guess, I guess the, the in, in the matchup, what I one thing I, I I always keep in the back of my mind is how long can I keep my white sources in my deck where they can't be targeted by my opponent's you know lands. Ghost Quarter allows me to fetch up like volcanics and and tundras a little bit more aggressively. Um, they can get wastelanded, yes, and yeah, that does suck. But certainly, it's not as bad as I don't know, Rishadon Port. Just Rishadon Port has beaten me a number of times, so. And it's also very hard to interact with uh, outside of like back to basics or something like that. But yeah, yeah, Ghost Quarter just doesn't actually interact with the basic planes nearly as effectively because it doesn't force 
you're not you're not really forced to put the basic planes into play since Ghost Quarter could always like fetch it up if if it's necessary. So, like everything you're saying, um, I'll, I'll try to specifically also answer this question along the lines of lands or uh, in 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 terms of the lands archetype. I think it's. I'm going to stop you there for one second. I also want to point out one more thing regarding the ghost quarter thing. It's completely minor, but it also doesn't really slow your mana down, right? If you get a uh, land ghost quartered, you can always get one more basic because you have so many basics in the deck. That's another pretty big point. Okay, what you're saying. So for lands, I would say it's not an easy deck by any means, but in terms of what is it doing in the matchup, I think it is one of the easier decks to figure that out. So... In general, if you're struggling with this in Legacy, that's actually a good deck to, to play because I think that you can generally follow the matchup rules a little bit better than some of the more mid-rangey, controlly fair decks. So, you know, some of the Delver decks that sometimes have mid-range elements or the control decks that have creatures, those decks always get fairly complicated in figuring out that role. But for lands, I would say a large portion of the time you are... Uh, the the controlling deck against fair decks and you're picking your spots against them and against combo decks it's very simple that you are trying to merit ledge them very quickly because your mana denial strategy is not going to be good enough against uh, the way that many of the combo decks attack you so I know that's oversimplifying something but in general I think it's it, it's it's a little more straightforward to attack the metagame with lands in that way and uh, sideboarding also. I think is that should help out there as well uh, in terms of what you bring in. Next question. Are there strategies that you like to use for tuning decks for new metagames? Does Wilson have any stories around brewing with Maverick recently? How about Onrog and the abomination of science that is running six miracles? This is from Riley Yeekle. I don't like how excited you were saying the word abomination. I think that accurately describes what you've been playing recently. Hey, it is certainly very, very interesting. And I feel like there's a lot to say here, but I'll shoot the question to you first, Bryant, because there's been a lot of new, you know, factors coming in into the legacy format, and the 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 method that you've been taking seems to be pretty scientific in terms of like the minor adjustments you're making. For example, you know, Mox Opal, Defense Grid, Hope of Gear Poor. Maybe give me some insight where you're at. So it's tough because I'm a mathematical person. I look at my spreadsheet. And I look at how often I'm playing against something and what these decks actually are and if there's anything I can do to fix it. And something I'll mention that I've gone through recently is I was looking at Reanimator and Miracles because Miracles is the deck that I've faced the most since uh, the London Mulligan, which is weird because most people would agree with me that it's not very good right now and things like that. But if you look at the time that I'm pulling these numbers from, this was last week, I had faced Miracles 17 times, and it was the deck that I've played the most. And I was like, that's kind of interesting, because like all the Miracles uh, stalwarts say that it's not good right now. And then I was looking at it, and Black Red Reanimator was actually more commonly played if I lumped both versions together, so blue-black and red-black. And I was like, well, maybe I should try Tormod Script. So I tried towards mod script and I found that my overall win percentage went lower because I was using those slots on something else to improve a miserable matchup. So if my matchup is really bad, I was at 25% against these decks and I'm able to raise it to 50%. Maybe that's a maybe. Is that worth being worse against Delver, against Miracles, against prison decks in the long run? Are those percentage points against this specific deck worth it? Yeah, that's a pretty refined process. My 
my process is a lot less refined. I'm just kind of like taking like sludge from the ground and throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, I mean, this the idea that I'm working with is definitely like not even close to being finished, sculpted, as shiny as Wilson's head. But it like it's a process and you have to basically try almost everything that you can. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, for example, I first started with a number of Terminus. Then I played against Combo a bunch, and I, you know, found this interaction where, like, my blue cards were never there for Force of Will. So I was like, all right, well, you know, how do I add more blue cards? And you make minor fixes like that um, over and over and over and over again, and then you get, like, a more polished pile. It takes a lot of time, and it's not the most elegant system, but at this stage of the game, I think that's just the best solution. This is just, like, smash your head into a brick wall over and over again. Do you guys know if Wilson has any stories around brewing with Maverick recently? I don't think Wilson's played Magic in about six months. Fortunately, I don't have any stories. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have said anything about that one day when I brewed Maverick because I think that like maybe 20% of our podcast questions that we've received are about my Maverick brew. But seriously, Maverick's pretty cool. It's had some new tools. Maybe I'll put some time into it soon. Recently, I have seen Wilson's favorite new green creature pop up in a non-Maverick deck. I've seen Rug Delver with uh, the new level-up green threat. I can't think of its name right now, but... Hexdrinker! It's $24. Hexdrinker is a $24 card? Why? Cube staple. I don't think that's true. I think they're like 14 That's still egregious, like... Oh, yes. Cube driving the price of card singles. Hey, Cube is the only real format. Foil is 60 and out of stock on Star City Games. Oh, we're, so we're using Star City prices. Okay. Why don't I pay four times the amount of money for something and then $12 for shipping? Good heavens. We love Star City games here on this show. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> They're delightful. But I guess I guess there's like actual use case scenarios for the card like outside of Legacy. So maybe that's what's driving the price. The only thing I can think about is Rug Delver is playing Hexdrinker. I did play against Hexdrinker once out of a bug control deck, but it was that's not Maverick, so that's not really exciting. I terminused it after almost dying to it, so scary. I'll answer the last part of this question. How about Anurag and the Abomination of Science that is written in Six Miracles? I agree. What a crazy, crazy guy. He ordered the cards in foil Japanese and paper, so we know that it somehow affected him on a legitimate level. I actually also ordered all of the same exact cards that Anurag did. Do you know that regular non-foil Japanese Red and Six is 150,000 yen on Hararuya? That's about $150. Or maybe it's 15. No. Yes. Whoa. It's $150. It's very expensive. And I had to basically sell my arm and leg to get my playset. So next question is by Nicholas Wong. And Nicholas is asking if we could briefly discuss whether Four Color Delver will be here to stay as a tier one deck, as well as our opinion of blue-white Delver in the metagame? And that's an interesting question. I think if we compare this deck to other Delver decks, we can easily notice that Ren and Six is the, the leading factor for this deck. Here's my honest opinion about Ren and Six in the current shells of, of four-color Delver. I think it's good. I think it is not $100 level good, like the price tag for whatever. Um, and the reason I don't think it's that good is because it's very powerful on turns two, three, play it and you take up the first time that's probably the most powerful that it'll ever be the second third fourth and fifth times you tick up when it's at like four five and six loyalty it's a lot less powerful because you're just buying back the same land over and over again and you can make your land drops towards the time of infinity but in a delver deck you're not really like capitalizing on that right and so that's why some players have actually shifted to a more control oriented list that being said i still think that the value is 
there and it definitely allows you to attack from a different angle you know sort of mitigating the impact of wasteland or even having that wasteland lock aspect um to the, adding it to the deck one notable thing that i will mention in terms of utility with red and six to sort of mitigate the downside i, I have found that lonely sandbar has been actually just insane with red and six Whereas cards like the, the Canopy Lands are, are not as good because they use your land drops. But uh, definitely test out Lonely Sandbar with Red and Six if you get a chance. In four-color Delver, though? Uh, it could be like a sideboard card if you really want to use Red and Six against the control decks. I I think it's that powerful. Well, I'll say I, I agree. May, I, well, I, I haven't played it like you have, but it makes sense that that makes Red and Six much better. Which leads me to wonder, should people be playing Ren and Six in a Delver deck, or should you be playing it in mid-range decks that use it better with utility lands like Lonely Sandbar? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that is going to be the natural progression of the card card's purpose in the Legacy format. Like we saw at the in the recent Star City Games event, you know, Daryl and company with, with Ren and Six and Astrolab, they they did very well in that event. I think for Color Delver, that does not necessarily mean that it's going to be any worse i think it still has you know a lot of application like in terms of tempo it's not even that bad because against you know the the slew of x1s in the format you know playing you know delver on turn one your opponent plays a baleful strix you reply with red and six that's just a massive push forward you know those sort of situations i think come up a lot like even even a deck like death and taxes right that i mean that 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 deck i think it's reasonable i think it's a very good deck but red and six certainly does hurt that deck a, a, a good amount Delver strategies can leverage the card for sure. And I think the deck will be here to stay. I think it does have some, you know, apparent weaknesses and apparent strengths. For example, Tarmogoyf is really good right now. And for that reason, you know, maybe a lot of people will be slinging Tarmogoyfs. But then, you know, when the meta starts to adapt to Tarmogoyf, playing more like Fatal Pushes over Lightning Bolts, you, we might see that, you know, the four-color Delver deck is not necessarily going to be the number one forefront Delver deck. Four-color Delver. Out of the Delver decks that are currently available, I think it is the best one for fighting combo. Having both discard and counter magic is a huge disadvantage for the combo deck. So Blue Red Delver, Grixis Delver, I guess Grixis wouldn't count there, but Rug Delver. If I know that I don't have to worry about discard spells, I can sit back and wait and sculpt my game plan and pick my point in which I'm ready to win. Against decks that have both Thoughtseize and Force of Will, I'm kind of forced into going off a little bit earlier than I would, would want to, just because I have to respect that Thoughtseize. And something that I've noticed recently is in the initial list that Rugved uh, won the challenge with a couple weeks ago, is there were three copies of Abrupt Decay and only two copies of uh, Arcanist or Arcanist. And I've seen that sw uh, switch up a little bit. I've seen lists with more than two now. I've seen lists that aren't running any main deck Abrupt Decay, but instead are running more one-ofs to turn on the Arcanist so it has more targets, because it, that list only had 14. We're seeing Arcanist, I think, is a reasonable home in this version of Delver, because it is a little bit bigger. You have Thoughtseize, you have Renin Six, you have Tarmogoyf. It's a bigger Delver deck. And I think if you're less tempo-oriented, it probably makes a little bit more sense, unlike these blue-red Delver decks. And as far as blue-white Delver goes, I've never been a fan of that deck. Playing days in your Jace deck with your Delver of Secrets that can reveal Batter Skull. The deck is a slew of hot trash. I'm surprised that people even like it. I know that's not a very uh, popular way of saying it, but it's just not very good. Like, there's not enough synergies in that deck, in my opinion. I think days and Jace are pretty powerful together. I will say, though, I don't necessarily know what blue-white Delver does that is like better than other decks right now. Wilson has this like astonished look on his face that you just said that days and Jace go well together. <laughs> Dude, 
cast the days, and then you brainstorm the land back with Jace. How is that not the just the most powerful thing that you could do in all of Magic? Black Lotus pales in comparison to the Jace days combo. So when you're already winning, you can win even more. But what about on turn two when you reveal your Jace the Mind Sculptor to your Delver Secrets? Nobody makes plays on turn one, two, and three anyways. Turn four is, there's there's a new rule. It just recently, I can't believe you guys don't know this, that it just got eroded, that you're not allowed to play spells until turn four. Fair point. Okay, so next question is from Harold. Harold says, I do not think Miracles is well positioned right now. <gasps> is there ever going to be a time when you abandon the Miracles ship? I would also be interested in Brian's and Wilson's opinions on Miracle's position in the meta. For example, after going only 50% for a long time with Miracles, I made a change to Blue-White Stoneblade and had an insane run with an above 80% win rate. But what's the run? What's an insane run? I'm curious what the sample size is for that. I usually look at runs in the terms of like 100, 100 matches. That's what I, what I consider a run. Harold, you bring up a very good point. I think Brian and Wilson also sort of feel the same way. Miracles is just does not feel that good right now, and I can give you a breakdown of this, right? The most powerful card, the reasons to play Miracles, uh, rhyme with Mounterbalance and Merminus. And those two cards right now, Counterbalance and Terminus, are just not really that good right now. If you look at the average CMC in most decks, with the recent printing of all these Planeswalkers, uh, cards like Dreadhorde Arcanist and, you know, Delver decks just being everywhere, not even having Sensei's Divining Top or a consistent way to control the top of your deck, Counterbalance isn't just doing it. The blind flips are not there. Same thing with Terminus, right? If you look at the the recent threats that have been printed in you know the last few sets, it's a lot of planeswalkers, it's a lot of enchantments and a lot of artifacts. People know how to play against the miracle strategy. They know that it's not just creatures anymore that can you know kill your opponent. Winter or Bitter Blossom, we're seeing lots of those cards now. Terminus, just not as good as it used to be. So I guess I will. I, I mean, I will never like ditch miracles to answer your question, but I am. I definitely have been playing a lot of non-Miracles lately to just sort of get a feeling for maybe I'll need to play something else, a GP Atlanta kind of deal. I will disagree with one thing that you said, which is I I do not think that counterbalance necessarily needs to be a reason why Miracles is good or bad or a reason why you even play the deck. I think the Miracles is good because of the white creature interaction spells plus basic lands. I believe that is the core of Miracles. And even if Counterbalance never becomes good again, which I think it hasn't been good for a long time, even when Miracles players play it in their list, I think that there is uh, an appropriate metagame for Terminus. And I think that Miracles personally might be a little bit better than people think it is if built a certain way. One thing that I would like to discuss is people who track data. And I'm not calling Harold out because I don't know who Harold is or anything about Harold, but this is just a in general rant. Is People that A, either don't actually track and then say percentages, so like 80%. Uh, when you talk to people who don't actually track, they're like, oh yeah, my, I'm pretty good. I'd say my win percentage is around 72 with X stack. I'm like, yeah, because 72 is like what Miracles and its heyday was before it got banned. So are you sh- you're sure you're actually at 72? Or are you at like 60, 61, 62, somewhere in there? Because people who don't track always think that their win percentage is actually higher than it actually is. 
The second thing is paper versus online. I like over the years, I've just noticed that the win percentages vary quite a bit between your paper win percentage and your online win percentage because paper magic players just this isn't a knock on paper players. It's just there's a lot of players that aren't as skilled as the people that play every day on magic online. So you'll get some free wins from people that are a little bit less experienced and that raises your win percentage as well. Miracles uh, just it just does not feel really good right now. And it sucks for me to say that. Especially after having played uh, Sensei's Divining Top Miracles like day before yesterday for Legacy Unchained, that was a roller coaster. By the way, so many emotions. My heart was just tickled the whole time. But one thing I do want to point out is that maybe Miracles is that kind of deck. It's like an anti-meta deck. When you look at like current iterations of how it's being built with counterbalances and back to basics, where when those particular cards are good, then perhaps Miracles is going to be a good deck. That would just means it would like ebb and flow with the the rotations of the the Legacy meta game. David R. says, I wanted to get your honest opinion on the karn Mycosynth lattice combo. Here are my thoughts. I am not a fan of combos like this because they end the game by forcing your opponents to scoop. I'm okay with combo decks like Storm or Dredge or Sneak and Show that end the game, but not karn lattice It reminds me of the reason that Leovold was banned in Classic Commander. Not just because his combo was uh, with wheel effects, but his combo with Teferi's Puzzle Box. The combo basically forces your opponents to discard their hands and never have another draw step. Yet the game is not actually over. What are your takes? Do you like or dislike the combo? Would you play it? Do you think it needs a banning? Or is it just flavor of the week? It's fine. Karn can animate the lattice and attack four times, right? I think I think that is one way to end the game. I'm not sure how much of an issue it is, but I do agree effects in the game that create, that, that make it not fun to play, like, for example, Sensei's Divining Top and Counterbalance, unfun effects. I have recently, you know, acquired a taste for disliking them much more than I used to, so I do, I do agree with you. All right, so let's take a look at the next question then, and that is by Brett Fillinger, who says, when playing in local events and trying to fine-tune my deck, should I play more stock lists to practice what I play in a bigger tournament? Or should I adjust slightly for what I know is prevalent in my local meta? If I'm already comfortable with my deck, does that change anything? Basically, I want to get relevant experience, but there's a sea of Chalice of the Void around me, and I don't want those tasteless heathens to get off scot-free. I already like you so much, Brett, and you know what? I've got the perfect answer for you, and my answer is I have no real answer because, honestly... It's it. This is a really personal question, and you have to ask yourself what your goals are before you even get started playing, right? So a lot of the times for me, when I go to local events, I'm usually there for fun to hang out with people. So I don't particularly care if I win or if I lose. So I'll bring whatever I, you know, I'm just feeling like having fun with. If there's a Grand Prix coming up, though, and I want to, you know, maybe play in locals, then, you know, I'd play like what you're saying is like a stock list or something that i would be comfortable taking to a 15 round event or you know if i see like a shiny little duel in the cabinet and i want to get enough store credit for that then yeah you better believe i'm gonna metagame to beat all those chalice of the voids because uh i want to you know collect like for example the format championship that's going to take place in january of next year which is the magic online event that's going to be 32 players these 32 players probably will have a very you know big profile um, you know, that you can metagame against. And I think for that kind of event, you'd be very, very well rewarded for metagaming properly. So just, yeah, just really the, the question is, is like, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of the event? If you want to practice for a Grand Prix, then yes, I think take a stock list. 
So I have actually pretty strong opinions on this, and I've talked about it with some of my locals recently. And I personally, this has nothing to do with other people, but I don't think you will get better as a Magic player by local metagaming. Because eventually when you play in a 2K or a Star City Open or a Grand Prix, you're doing yourself a disservice. So what I found is that it built up a lot of false confidence in younger players and even more experienced veterans. So Let's say you're a green player. You get used to playing three chokes in your board because you know the other two good players at your store both play Miracles or some sort of blue stew deck. And you get used to playing three chokes, but now you go to a Grand Prix, you have your confidence up, and you're like, oh, I crush blue decks all the time. But you adjust your sideboard a little bit for an open metagame for once, and now you might have one or two chokes, and then you lose to a four-color control, and you're like, oh, my four-color control matchup's so good. How could I possibly lose my deck crushes this? No, it doesn't really crush it. You're just used to playing with three chokes in your deck. Or maybe you're a Miracles player that gets used to playing with two to three Aethersworn candidates in your board because there's a lot of combo in your local metagame. But then you go to a big open field, you adjust accordingly, and then you lose to Ad Nauseam Tendrils. These things happen. And instead, what you should do is always have your 75 built for what you would take to a big event. And this is my perspective, because you get used to beating these decks with the tools that you would have at a real event. And you no longer have this false sense of confidence or fake understanding of how your deck works in the matchup. You're always ready. And on top of that, you're doing other players at these locals a disservice. Because let's say I'm a burn deck and you're playing chill. When I go to a big event and I'm playing burn, I don't really know what my Miracles matchup is like or things along that nature because other people have to interact with you. It's not just you versus the field. I mean, it's a community, and if you want people to keep on coming back to your locals, you're not really helping them, so why would they keep on coming back and then Legacy dies out and shitty things happen? So that's my stance. That's a stretch, and also I owe nothing to the Burn players or the Chalice of the Void players. Fuck you, Exquisite Firecraft. I have story time. When I was in college, my good friend Michael Braverman, if any of you recognize him from the various tours and circuits out there, he sideboarded 15 cards against me at every Friday Night Magic. Shamelessly, you can ask him about this, and I'm not exaggerating. And I, I don't think it was a tactical decision to even win the FNM. I think it was just uh, what he enjoyed doing. That's a power play, and I respect that so much, words cannot even describe. That is a move of a, what was the term? Tasteless heathen. He's a, bra- he's a braver man than I. Okay, so on to the next question, and this one is by uh, Eliyahu David. Thank you for your question. We appreciate it very much. This is a multi-parter, so let's, let's uh, get into it. First part. Have you guys thought about doing Fundamentals of Legacy play episodes? I'm new to Legacy. In this episode, Anurag mentioned the critical turn, which I intuitively understand, but would be interested in hearing more about from a more experienced player's perspective. Yeah, that, that's interesting. We should talk about these things in a little bit more detail uh, in uh, some future episodes. That's a good idea for sure. Thank you. I would like to, if we do that, I would like to, I think this is also what you're suggesting, dear listener, which is that we go into maybe great analytical detail on the critical turn. I think that would, that would be an interesting thing to discuss. What I want to stay away from on this podcast is basics, and I don't think that's what you're asking. Show and tell costs three mana, therefore the critical turn is turn three. No, you're right. And you would you would definitely, we'd definitely flavor each of the you know things that we talk about with the nuances in each deck. Uh, it would be... 
we'd make it worth your while. But that's a, that's a very good suggestion. Uh, the second part is directed to Wilson. Have you thought about writing about your intuitive playstyle theory? I'd like to hear more details about it. Yes, and then I really appreciate the comment that says that our brief discussion really helped you think about how to level up as a new player. I really appreciate that. For me, I actually think about this a lot outside of the game of Magic, and I think that's why I spoke to it in so much detail in our last episode. I think it informs interpersonal relationships, problem-solving in school and careers, and it happens to also affect how people think about the game of Magic. So, yeah, I think I can talk about it more. I don't know if we want to spend that time right now. I think that it's something that we could probably go pretty deep on. Maybe if we want to table this for some other time, I can at least commit to including this on my future analysis of whatever topics we talk about for your first question. I'll, I'll include some points about uh, intuitive playstyle theory. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting. So I come from like the completely opposite camp, which is basically play a million games, read every interaction that exists in the book, and that way the next time it shows up, I know how it plays out, I know what to do, what I need to draw to re-beat it. Uh, so this whole intuitive mindset, it feels like you could write almost like a... a book an entire book worth of data you know that uh describes what to do and i feel like that'd be something interesting to talk about as well so the last last part of this question is what would be your advice to a noob like myself who is just wading into the waters of legacy i am playing dnt and i'm taking my beats and trying to learn all that i can besides lighting mtgo tickets on fire and learning from my losses what would you suggest i try to do to level up I'm watching a lot of content. All right. Well, I think you've got the first step down pretty well. You've invested into Magic Online. So congratulations for doing what not everyone does. I think Magic Online is going to be the tool that will push you the furthest ahead compared to any other resource available. And I also really do like that you are watching streams for the decks that you're playing. So I think you already know by now, you know, Mark Koenig, a.k.a. Barra, and then Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Death and Taxes for the win. And I think um, XJ Cloud also. All three of these are pretty good streamers on Twitch who play or are very proficient with Death and Taxes. Good on you for watching them. I will say there's one avenue that I think might be very efficient, and that is to just straight up get coaching. I know Barra does do coaching. I don't know what his rates are, but I'm sure you could reach out to him and ask him for that. For example, Brad Nelson, when it was time for the player, the SCG Players Championship a while ago, you know, he reached out to Mark, and it just makes sense to do something like this because let's be honest, Mark has already burned the tickets, he's already learned the play patterns. Why reinvent the wheel? Wheel, I'm sure you could save a lot more money just you know getting the cheat sheet from the master himself. So that's one thing to consider, just you know, coaching sessions. And Brian, you do a lot of coaching, right? How how do you feel like your viewers are impacted by the coaching? Do you think it's more useful for them than uh, just grinding leagues on Moto? I would say so. And what a lot of people end up learning, so you can watch a stream and you can watch someone play and you're like, yeah, I would have done that too until they're sitting behind you watching you play and then you take a line and they explain to you, hey, why not consider this? And then you discuss that line and you realize, hey, my intuition here might not be correct. Uh, because like I would normally do this, but it loses to these two cards, where if I do this line instead, it only loses to one card. That sort of thought process. And you end up gaining a lot 
of knowledge about yourself as a player. So it's more of a one-on-one personal experience more than anything else compared to watching a stream. And if you have someone pointing out your weaknesses, you can only grow as a player. Streams, like legacy streams, are largely educational, but they're also content that is supposed to be entertaining so it's not necessarily going to be explicitly directed towards or you know catered to your learning requirements everybody learns a different way and it's sometimes like just easy to tune out to somebody who's you know making plays and interacting with other viewers and things like that so yeah i mean definitely look on the the one-on-one training i think that would be maybe an easy way to either a you know take your intermediary advanced whatever level you're at to the next level or you know just save yourself some time and some dollars and uh Learn learn the fundamentals that other people have already spent you know a lot of time figure figuring out. Well, I know that it's not legacy, but last summer I was watching Numat the Mummy, who's a very 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 famous Twitch streamer, uh, stream some standard because I was trying to learn the mono blue paradoxical outcome deck for some upcoming grand prix, and Numat was playing this deck on stream, and I was like, hey, this actually aligns to my interests. I'm going to watch. But a lot of these bigger standard pros or grinders from their streams, don't exactly explain their logic all the time because they're more of the entertainment aspect of streaming. And I know a lot of legacy players tend to view streams from an educational standpoint, but for a lot of standard, because it's so repetitive and fast moving, they're in it for the viewer. They just want to keep people there for as long as they can, get more ads, things like that. So Numat didn't explain any of his plays at all. And I, after an hour of watching, I ended up closing the window because I felt like I hadn't learned anything. So there's always a chance that even though you're watching a stream, you're not getting what you need. In addition to all of that, I will add this. This may not be doable for you. It totally depends on your community, your geography and all that. But if there is a local community of legacy players or even a a small group of people that you think that you can have some sort of relationship with, you get along with, I think it's very beneficial to play paper legacy with people, particularly as, as a newer player, so that you can start to get in-person feedback. So it's sort of like the coaching feedback that you guys gave, but becomes uh, more natural over time just from playing games with, with local players. And um, yeah, so that's, I mean, for me, that's sort of how I got really into Legacy about 10 years ago is me and three friends just started playing tons and tons and tons of Legacy and we really helped each other. And I think the relational aspect of that uh, added something that the the solo grinding on online would not have done in the same way. But again, that may not be possible, and that's just dependent on geography and, and, and local gaming culture and all sorts of, of variables. Yeah, that sounds a lot like well, like the the versus live series on Star City Games, where they're like playing right next to each other, and they'll be like, "I could do this or this, but I'm going to do this because." And they sort of talk aloud, and then like in between every game, they'll like sort of discuss the lines they're taking and and why they're doing what they're doing. So yeah, I think that that is also very, very, very useful as well. So yeah, thank you, thank you for your question. The next question is provided by MTG or sorry R slash MTG Legacy moderator the Fringe Thing. And this is a four-part question, so we're about to dive right in. Part number one. If Watsi knew somehow that banning a large number of cards, like 15 to 20 cards, in Legacy would make the format more fun, would you support them doing so? Modern is available for you to play if that is what you're interested in. I'm like, my gut reaction was no, right? I don't like banning cards. I really, really, really don't like banning cards. Because... 
and that's just a sign of like weak design or something like that. It's sort of like unless it's like truly impressive, like you know, like survival or like treasure cruise kind of deal. Then I don't think I'd I think I'd rather just focus on like getting players to I don't know think outside the box and then. I mean, if it's truly oppressive, you probably can't beat it, and then then it needs to go. But otherwise, if it's like forty five percent, like a forty five percent matchup or something like that, or I I don't know. But but the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, yeah, I guess I would be okay with it because if you make the format more competitive, if healthier, why would you not want the format to be healthier? So it goes back to the old adage of like ban everything until necroponents is legal or until necroponents is fine. The ban necroponents or ban everything until Kurt Ape is good. People don't want to play with watered down cards. It's one of the biggest things that modern has had against it. The best cantrip that you can play in a blue deck is serum visions. No one actively enjoys casting serum visions. And one of the po- uh, problems that modern has had over the years is that they end up banning so many cards like while the cattle was on their ban list for years years and no one enjoys playing a watered down format so you could ban lines that diamond you could ban gristle brand you could ban brainstorm you could ban ponder and you would get all these like middle tier cards now becoming playable but at some point people want to cast those cards and legacy is that environment for them because vintage isn't re- i don't want to say it's not a real format but people don't play vintage in paper there's like a couple events a year and that's it the vintage community is driven by online, so legacy is that shared experience for people to cast all these older cards. And you should really only be banning things that are oppressive, in my eyes. So I'm going to take a philosophical stab at this question. So it's it's presuming this this omniscient game company somehow just knowing that this decision will create an objectively more fun format. I don't know how I could argue with that because. Regardless of what my inclinations are now, or biases against banning cards, if you're telling me that an omniscient organization knew knew that it was going to make it for, more fun for me, would I agree to it? Sure, because that's a hundred percent. You're saying there's a hundred percent chance it'd be more fun. Then my fun will trump any opinions I have about banning cards. But since this is sort of a strange question, and I don't necessarily believe that banning 15 to 20 cards would make the format more fun, I'd be against it. Hmm. That's kind of interesting, actually. Like, fun is also somewhat subjective. So what's fun for you might not be fun for me. It might be fun for Bryant sometimes, like only on Tuesdays. Well, but isn't the question, isn't it saying it would be objectively more fun? Like, there would be 15 to 20 cards gone, but objectively, the format would be more fun? Yeah, I mean, in in the framework framework of the question, you're you're right. It is objective, but just also keeping in mind that from like a day to day, like a practical perspective, like fun is also something subjective. And if we could just take fifteen cards out of the format, like Chuck Show and Tell, Chuck Terminus, some people would be happy. Some people would. You can't please everybody. Um, so maybe that's a reason to also just not do it because if you can't please everybody, there's no reason to take some action that would only please certain people the second question is like and wilson i think you might have a lot to say about this one so perk your ears up for here why only wilson i have a lot to say on this legacy circa 2010 2011 is sometimes lauded as the format's golden age why do you think that some players feel this way do you agree with their assessment and if so what do you think has been responsible for the decline i feel like there are like 20 questions in this one submission i love it 
I'm going to go ahead first, uh, Wilson. You can hold your damn horses. Why do players feel this way? I think it's because the format was less powerful. You didn't have Gristlebrand yet. There was no Terminus. So the four-color counterbalance decks at the time were a lot less powerful. Their win conditions were Rock's Warmonk. Their sweeper was uh, Fire Spout. In general, the power level of Legacy was just a lot lower, which meant that you could play more silly strategies. You could get away with random brews like Nick Fit or uh, what was the the deck was actually just called Dirt. It ran Golgari Grave Scarab or something like that. It dredged for a one and came back was a four four. Back in the day, there was a mono white control deck that ran a one white cantrip that prevented a damage. Like these were playable cards. And between, I'd say, 2013, maybe even 2012, and 2015, a lot of very competitive cards were printed. Abrupt Decay, Deathrite Shaman, Terminus. There's just a lot of playable things that were printed that you can't really come back from. We're never going to go back to this golden age of Legacy where you were able to play more silly cards. Time just doesn't work like that. And I know people are always talking about how they want to go back to 2010 to 2012, where Maverick was this magical deck that could beat everything. But Magic adapts, it keeps on moving. You just kind of have to go with the flow. Yeah, True Name Nemesis is one that like, most notably like shouts out to me as, I'm going to define what the legacy format is like, and it is not going to be you know, as, as golden agey. Wilson? So I played a lot of legacy during this time. This is when I, I really learned the format. I, I think I probably played 20-plus unique archetypes in Sanctioned Legacy events. Now, Sanctioned Legacy was you know anywhere from 8 to 16 players at, at some of the events I was playing. But you play so many different things. I think one point that has not been brought up is it's not just, just objectively the power level of cards being printed. It's also players were felt more free and creative and wanted to play things that weren't necessarily the deck to beat or the best deck. It was sort of the the vibe and the format is find something you like that you could also hopefully win with, but you really had to like it first. So people were really enjoying their deck, attached a lot of identity to their deck, and it was it was sort of like win win winning is the second factor even though people still really enjoyed uh trying to find ways of, of winning. I know Bryant may disagree with me that disagree with that in some some respects being in one of the more competitive areas for legacy in the in the world. But in general, if you look at the deck list, for example, I think it's GP Chicago. That was either 2008 or 2009. So it was right before this era. But the diversity was just insane. Even the decks that were top 16ing, you know, this is, uh, the 2010 is, is about the end of the Eva green stage when people were playing like suicide black decks and, you know, the lands deck in this time was awesome winning with a single man land and potentially barbarian ring. I remember at one point I was trying five colors in a lands deck playing a couple since divining tops and just insane number of singletons. It just felt like a huge puzzle box. It was, it was a lot of fun, but but yeah, in general, I think just the creativity, you felt wild and free during this time. Plus, Painter was the uh, best deck to play in May of 2011. So, Wilson, you mentioned something that is near and dear to my heart. So, uh, 2009, I was still learning how to play Storm. I mean, I had been playing Storm for a couple of years, but I never really felt like I was that good with it. And at 
Grand Prix Chicago in 2009, I met one of my own combo idols. There was a player there that actually ended up top eighting the Grand Prix, Tommy Kalowith. He was a big known vintage player at the time and played a lot of vintage storm. So I got to meet him and he gave me a lot of advice at the time. And I just, I don't know, randomly mentioning that, but meant a lot to me. Power creep lately has feels really pushed. Like if you look at the design between, you know, Ren and six and all these other cards, like the planeswalkers that recently came out. I, I have to say that is one thing that I'm still kind of uncertain about whether or not these cards are coming out too fast, too strong. I do imagine that the power level back in the day was certainly a lot lower, which means that, yes, all the things that would probably not be competitive today, you know, stood a chance. And it is kind of like you're saying, Wilson, you know, you find something you actually like, and if you're able to win with it, well, I mean, that makes the time you spend playing with that kind of deck all the more meaningful, all the more impactful. So I just found my playset of Arabian Nights Curd Apes that remind me of this era. I enjoyed playing things even even like zoo which is totally wiped out of the format unfortunately by a card that on likes you mean the deck that won the leaving a legacy open last weekend did it really yeah zoo won the open zoo with like curd apes and wild nakadles and stuff wild nakadle termagoyf knight of the reliquary that's pretty cool actually all right shout out that that is very impressive so third question in this four potter four 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 parter is nowadays the community is splintered across several several platforms including facebook groups discord channels reddit and the source do you think this has a negative effect on the format what could be done to improve the situation really enjoyed the source I felt like you could just go on there and just spend all this time looking through these decks like the Mighty Quinn and going on to page four and seeing some insane, insane thing that used some terrible cards. And I was I just loved it. But yeah, the question about this, this is sort of an awkward question because I'm not sure how to answer it. But I think that there is sort of a, a lot of legacy conversations are becoming private because of things like Discord and Messenger. Reddit's obviously a fine way of discussing legacy and the source massively tanked. The Leaving a Legacy Facebook group has been pretty fun. I've, I've enjoyed that, even though it's not really like deck discussions. It's a cool way to see the community, and Facebook adds a personal element. So I think no one goes really deep into strategy, but you're like, oh, this such and such person's going to this event and all those things, so that's pretty neat. But yeah, the fragmentation of it is uh, definitely a problem when it comes to uh, macro community feedback on deck strategy and also probably on archetype diversity, I think. I don't know. What do you guys think? You guys probably have more opinions than me on this. You said that in a much better manner than I could have. I think I would have been a little bit more blunt with how I said that. But I think you hit the nail on the head. During the Source's Golden Age, there is less people voicing their opinions. And there was a lot of deck experts communicating with other people that were very well versed in that deck. And when the source grew, there was a lot of opinions coming from people that may or may not have had the experience backing it. And the signal to noise ratio kind of disappeared. And that's why you saw a lot of people leave the source and go to Messenger or Discord or Reddit. And I think part of it's that forums aren't really the most effective way of getting communication. I actually really like how Reddit displays new things up top. And it's really good from a news perspective because I can always see new articles and what's new for the day. I actually sit on Reddit all day at work, so it's actually pretty convenient for me. Where the source, you have to look at the threads and dig through the threads and find 
the last posts you saw and then scroll back down and all this good stuff. So it's more work to see the information that you want to know. Where I think the source is valuable is for archiving purposes and single deck discussion because you have less people asking the same questions like Ant versus TS is a very common thing that comes up in the uh, legacy subreddit where if it was on the source, maybe you could find a post that had been pinned or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Technology does evolve and it does adapt. And I think a platform like Discord is actually kind of cool because, I mean, it just operates at a much faster speed than, than you know, something like the source, right? The forum posts and things like that. I remember when I was first getting into Miracles, it's exactly what you were saying, right? Like you'd have your, your, your you know, Philip Schoeniger's posting every now and then. And I would, I remember just like sitting in front of the computer, you know, aggressively refreshing the page, hoping that someone would reply to my message and, you know, being disappointed after no one says anything you know for five minutes i'd have to wait till the next day whereas on like discord it's just like snap snap you know i type something someone's got feedback um and it's just it's just so much more convenient and then when you have these homes that are basically dedicated to a specific craft you get to go a lot more in depth too right you look at for example the miracles discord which i know uh, you know a number of people in the miracles community have done an excellent job uh, of of keeping, you know, tuned, healthy, groomed, wealthy, wise, whatever it is. And like, there's so many subcategories in there that have, you know, just all sorts of discussions that you can actually have in, in, in that sort of forum-esque framework, I guess you can't really talk. It's, it's hard. It, things get lost a little bit faster in, in that sort of framework. I mean, I don't use any of these platforms as much anymore. I kind of just like stick to my own thoughts and like personally message a couple of people here and there, like, you know, Wilson, like what did he, you know, what kind of ice cream flavor does he like for this day of the week? And then use that to build my miracles deck but you never message me about miracles never this was a bad example and we're gonna just like so yeah uh that's just my thoughts on the question yeah i think i like uh, technology evolves things discord is a faster platform i think it's pretty good you get more information out there and about there and you get your decks to evolve much faster also they're just so easy to make like the other day like i was reading a legacy post and some guy was like I don't know if anyone wants to have like a dedicated testing group and then like snap snap they made a discord channel for it like that's pretty cool moderation is another thing I'm sure it's much more easy to much easier to moderate maintain in in smaller circles so the last question that the fringe thing has to ask is what is a card of your own design that you would think would be a great addition for the format and why Bryant Wilson got any ideas I got a lot to say I'm just gonna say a pre-existing card that I would like to exist in legacy I would really, really like uh, Crowstorm to be legal. It's a uh, the last unset. You've already said this on on multiple episodes. Yeah, uh, that doesn't change it. I still want it to exist. What about Blast from the Past? No, that card sucks. What? Yeah, get out of here with that trash. So if, if I could design my own legacy cards, what I would really, really, really love to do is... Something that Hearthstone actually does pretty well because it's entirely electronic and it's much easier to do. They just like nerf cards. So they'll take a busted card and they'll make, all right, this costs more mana and it makes less power, you know, that kind of thing. Why can't we do that with these legacy cards? I mean, obviously, because we've got, we've printed mil- thousands and millions of copies of them in, 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 in paper, but like, a, 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 imagine a world, all right? Sensei's Divining Top is banned and then Wizard announces a new set and the premier card, the cover card for this set is the student's divining top. 
You can you see you can like it's like a little bit of a throwback. You know, instead of costing one mana, it costs two mana per activation. And when you tap, you don't put it on top of the deck. You put it like second from the top or something. That way, it's, it's clearly like a nerfed version of the card or like a show and tell that, I don't know, like maybe like you put Gristlebrand into play, but it has a suspend counter on it so that, you know, your opponent like gets a turn to, you know, find an answer or something like that. Those, those are just like some random ideas. And I don't know if they would actually be good. And then obviously you would probably just like, you know, maybe ban all the regular versions like ban show and tell and well that was gonna be my question are you just helping all of these degenerate decks by giving them more copies of the cards that are the best cards no yeah no, no of course not I, I would like if i if i brought like class presentation that's the name of this fake card i would ban show and tell and legacy and that way like i don't know i just want to like sort of like undo the power creep and also you know there are a lot of really cool cards that exist in the ban list that maybe if they were just a little bit weaker would be safe for legacy and like i mean what what what's the cost right you make a card play with it for a little bit and then ban it like a little bit of time lost if it's too strong i don't know that's just my like dig through time but instead of six blue blue it's 13 blue blue and still has delve that would not be that broken right would it i don't know okay can i give you one specific one that i would like to see printed sure a red mana to cast this card, it is a sorcery, Uh-oh. and it deals three damage to any target. The end. Wait, doesn't that doesn't that already exist? It does not. Doesn't chain lightning do that? Chain lightning does not just do that. I want a clean version of chain lightning without all of that crap written in the text box. <laughs> would you would you ban lightning bolt if you printed this card? Absolutely not. I think Burn needs another friend, and I would add this card to my cube. What do you guys think about uh, the errors that sometimes happen with card printing, such as in the Core Set 2020, there's a creature that was accidentally printed as a 2-3 for some of the precons, but it's actually a 2-2. Or if the scroll, uh, scroll Rack, there's a version where it only costs 2 to activate if it's Japanese. So in theory, you could just say, hey, this ability costs X now, because there's already messed up versions of these cards that exist elsewhere. Yeah, do we want to talk about some of those cards? I didn't actually know that those two were like that, that they like were versions with typos. Um, are there any other ones, Wilson, that you're thinking about? Yeah, there is the Alpha Orcish Artillery, which costs, it costs one and red instead of one and two red. Alpha Orcish Aura Flame, which I believe... They actually printed this as a new card. It inspired a new card. It was a Goblin Aura Flame or something from the new set. I haven't been keeping up with the new cards. But that was pretty neat that they actually uh, gave homage to, to Orcish Aura Flame misprint. The Spanish Maloku made two twos instead of one ones. Gotta go get that. <laughs> wow. That is, that is a world of difference. My god. That is kind of tricky. I like from a logistics perspective, I have no idea how you'd solve those issues because it's like you've literally printed it in paper and then just like lost it in the I don't know the expanse of the Magic the Gathering secondary market. Actually, like what you kind of just have to be like, haha, we made a mistake, and if you play with a broken card and you cheat with it, and you're in trouble. So I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but the last thing that I'll say is I would love to see more cards like Bloodgast and Gravecrawler. I really enjoy little recursive creatures that you can abuse with sack outlets, <clears throat> particularly for my cube. But I think it'd be really cool to see them in Legacy too. 
I think they're already an issue in modern, and it's getting to the point where there's enough of them where moderns become extremely graveyard dependent or reliant. And I think wizards, at least if I work for wizards, would be trying to print more answers or things that don't use the graveyard because how graveyard-centric modern is right now. Next question, and, and thank you for that question, the fringe thing. A lot of insightful things to t- think about here. Is by The next question is by Toadshorst, a.k.a. Simon. And Simon is saying, in how far do you think the casual attitude of legacy players, in addition to the cost of the reserved list cards... Per- prevents many from having a big card pool and influences the legacy paper metagame. You all play a decent bit online, and while it is still not cheap, it is easy enough to switch between decks, and therefore Moto has uh, a metagame that is constantly in flux. But in paper, I see the same decks much more often. So that's an interesting question, and I'm not even really sure... I mean, I, I guess, yeah, like it does just make a big difference, right? Like I used to, like people used to say like, you know, the, the, the Moto metagame is very inbred, whereas I like to think of the Moto metagame as being just sort of like ahead of the curve, you know, people, Legacy is an expensive format. People don't change decks, they change sideboards. And so for that reason, I guess you would see the same deck over and over and over again in your local metagame. I don't know if I agree with you. So on, on, on mine, you can buy a new deck for $200, and it's a blue duels deck you can buy. I don't know. Let's say you want to build Maverick. You can buy it for 270 ticks. But in paper, you want to buy Maverick. That's $2,000 if you get everything at like HP. And if my deck all of a sudden isn't good, I might just quit showing up to locals instead of buying a new deck because I don't. I can't afford to spend $1,200 on three pieces of cardboard. So instead of doing that, I might just sell my deck and switch formats. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting thing. I mean, cost the, the barrier to entry is kind of a, a pain. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, there, there are like a lot of new decks that are just like two-color decks and are extremely competitive. And I'm hoping that sort of injection of, of, of variety on, on, the, on the budget side, I don't know, just sort of solves this issue and makes people play a little bit more... But I guess it's also kind of what you were saying earlier, Wilson, where you're just like, people get attached to the decks that they play, right? Like, I, I don't play Miracles because I think it's the best deck all the time. I play Miracles because I, I, I can play that deck. I love that deck. I think with Legacy, something that often gets lost is constructing a deck is a process. It's not something that happens overnight. I don't know too many people that I go out there and dump four grand on a new deck. It's winning a couple locals in a row, building up store credit get eight cards next month. Maybe you go on a heater, you win three locals, you get 12 cards. And over the course of four or five months, you build your next deck. And I know that's like not a great answer, but that's how most people do it. I mean, when you're winning, don't just dump those, uh, that credit into packs. Packs are a terrible investment. Get legacy staples, get the small stuff. And if you have small stuff, honestly, in my opinion, the best thing that you can do for building a legacy collection, get the mana base, Go out, get 20 duels. You don't need four of each. You can get two of each if you want. And then go get 40 fetch lands. And now you pretty much have every mana base you'll need. And if you don't have maybe some list plays three underground seas, just don't play a third seed. Run an extra basic. You can get buy on two. And this will allow you to play enough decks where, let's say you want to switch from Grixis Delver to four color control. You only have to buy 
the flex pieces. You won't have to go out and spend $600 on a mana base. And maybe that's what you should be going for with your store credit instead. I mean, not. I mean, obviously, that's like a daunting task in and of itself, but that is an approach for sure. Uh, Wilson, do you have any ideas, thoughts on this? Or you want to move on to the next question? Nope, you guys covered it. Let's move on. All right, cool. So Dave Baruda, a.k.a. the Bruda Barracuda, a.k.a. one of the coolest cats that I know from the DMV area, has a multi-parter question. And the very first question is a bop. Number one reads, what is one of your fondest memories playing Legacy? Now, let me tell you one of my favorite matches in all of Legacy, all right? So this match was online, and I was playing against this test pilot, and we had this dead even record, and I won, so I was ahead. And that's the story about how my record against Brian Cook is positive. Wow, you wasted your one moment on that. <laughs> Congratulations, you fool. Oh, uh, man. I have two. One of them is a little bit spiteful, which will make Wilson enjoy it twice as much. Because I know that Wilson envies this uh, kind of drama. He lives for it. Maybe envy wasn't the right word, but that's what I went with. So the first one is the me making the top eight of my first Grand Prix. I was facing Ari Lax. We were both young gentlemen, and he had a huge fan club behind him. I had no idea who he was, but he had around 10 people watching behind him, and he was just very cocky and confident in himself, and he's playing ad nauseum tendrils, and he crushes me game one. And game two, I'm winning, and he just keeps on saying, come on, hurry up, and he's like telling me to play faster, and me being a little bit nervous, I do it. We eventually finish the game. I win with a silence, I believe. And then game three... He just keeps on saying, just show me the tendrils already. Just show me the tendrils already. And at this point, I just said, hey, calm down. I'll win when I'm ready. And then I grape shot at him for lethal in order to make top eight of the Grand Prix. And uh, I've since talked to Ari. He's a great guy. We've grown up quite a bit. I have no hard feelings towards him. But at the time, I was very proud of that. And uh, the other thing I want to talk about was... Probably my favorite moment in Magic history for myself is I'm playing as Todd Anderson on camera, and he has a turn one Gristlebrand. I untapped and killed him. Was he playing Blue Black Reanimator? He was playing uh, the Jerry Me special. Oh, show and God. tell. Wow, wait, that's even more impressive because typically Gristlebrand and play like with the deck that has Force of Wills as lights out. What about you, Wilson? I would say one of my fondest memories was the top eight of a Star City Games Invitational. I was playing against legacy comrade Joseph Percival Lissette. He was playing Miracles. I was playing a Nauseam Tendrils. It was a best of five. And I just remember one of the games, I had a, a raw ad nauseum in my hand. He had countertop established. Or no, 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 sorry, that wasn't it. He had top and play. But the way he was playing the game, I knew he was floating a force of will, and I wasn't able to get through with this card, obviously, because he's floating it. But he made this weird play in the game where he, like, basically brainstormed. He, like, did this, like, top-on-top action on his turn. He was basically trying to get a card from top of his deck to replay it, do all these different things with the cantrips, and then keep the Force of Will. But I picked the spot with the Ad Nauseum where he went to put his top on top while he's in the middle of doing all this, just dancing around on his turn. And I actually got him in the spot where he wasn't able to get 
the force of will because he was doing all this stuff with top and went off and was able to kill him with that nauseum on my next turn. Or I killed, I killed, got, I cast that nauseum and got enough stuff to kill him with tendrils on my next turn. It was just, it was really fun. Yeah, it was like a really subtle thing. I don't even really know why he did it. And it was one of those things too where I didn't know it was there. I just guessed it was there. But the way he was playing, I had sort of assumed. And um, it was just really, it was a really fun game. So that was, that was one of my favorite legacy moments. Say another one would be the first GP that I top aided. Just one of the Swiss matches. My opponent on the play went turn one Bayou, Chromox, imprinting a thought sees him to Turok me, and then I cast Misdirection at his him to Turok. And so he was left with a single card in his hand. So your story about Joseph Percival Sat reminds me of when Anurag Das met Bryant Cook where he was floating a Flusterstorm on top of his deck, and he thought he was very, very wise and smart and thin and handsome. And instead, he allowed Past and Flames to resolve, and that a very young, good-looking Bryant Cook abruptly decayed his, uh, his Sensei's Divining Top, Anurag flopped it, drew the Flusterstorm, and then he got to rest and died. <laughs> What's our record, Bryant? That doesn't matter. What's our record? Is it, what, what is it? Uh, seven, six, one? Anyways, I think for me, uh, like I, my most emotional moment is probably when I got DQ'd for my first top eight. I actually look, yeah, I know. For um, it was a weird situation. I don't think I've actually ever talked about it here, but this situation involved. I was playing in the top eight of an SCG. My opponent's on elves, and I had just won game one. And in game two, they had drawn eight cards, and I felt really bad for my opponent. And it was just like emotional because it was my first top eight. I didn't want them to have to mulligan to six because that was the rule at the time. And so I asked the judge, you know, hey, what are the options? And the judge was like, you can ID to go to another game. But there was like $2,000 on the line, and I was like, well, I'm not really sure what to do here, so I rolled the dice to figure out, and years later, I look back at that memory, and I'm just like, there's so much to learn from that, you know, and it's just like a, there was a lot of things in there, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, no, it was a really good learning experience, and like, I'm so, it's not dragging me down, and I kind of look back, and I'm just like, that's when I was... I don't know, just like a, a a wee little child. And I can always look back and see, well, this is how much I've grown since then. And I guess like my other happiest moment may have been like when I beat Bob Wong in the finals of Eternal Extravaganza 6, I think. This was right before Top got banned. But uh, that was also fun just being in the finals with uh, one of my best friends. So cool. Second question is, during a metagame shift due to a banning or new cards making an impact, do you prefer to experiment a ton or wait to see how the metagame settles out and then adapt? Why? I am the kind of person who will just pick up all the mud and throw it on the wall and just see what sticks. So yeah, I'll try everything. We've noticed. When Force of Negation Yeah. When when Force of Negation came out, I had it, I tested it, Narset came out, had it, tested it. Just gotta be at the forefront of development, you know, like I could wait for other people to figure it out, or I could try to learn myself, and then, you know. Plus, I'm streaming a bunch, and it's kind of important for me to have some sort of content to put out there. When Cardin and Narsa were printed, I kind of took a hiatus from Legacy for a few weeks. I knew that my deck wasn't going to be well-positioned. I didn't want to just throw away tickets jamming Storm into Karn the Great Creator. So instead, I played other formats. I played some Modern, I played some Vintage. And then Modern Horizons happened, the format shifted, and I started playing Legacy again. I think that breaks can be healthy. You don't have to sit there and be miserable playing something you don't enjoy. Yeah, Anurag, I thought that you 
used to just scour the spoilers for Miracles playable cards, but now you have really branched out. And I feel like you're underselling this this sort of uh, brand pivot that you've had. Like, we haven't really talked about it. Or maybe you maybe you haven't admitted it to yourself yet. Actually, the, as I'm t- saying this out loud, I realize that maybe... Yeah, I don't know. But hey, I, I appreciate it. It's pretty cool to watch you play all these different types of decks on your channel and lets you try out a bunch of new cards. A pivot sounds like a sharp change in trajectory, <clears throat> whereas... I think what I'm going through right now is kind of like a a gradual the gradual caressing slope of a meadow filled with lush green and beautiful scents and it's just a journey all right yeah I I I, I do notice that I'm playing a lot of other decks um uh, recently I mean I could keep jamming miracles but lately what I've sort of also just internalized is it's just like content creation is really fun playing other decks as a part of content creation and also in terms of like developing my brand and my you know whatever my twitch stream is is requires to not just play miracles all the time i think you just open yourself up to so much more viewership and interaction with people if you step outside your comfort zone a little bit so i don't know that's kind of cool um so yeah i my answer dave is i just walk in head first and try the new cards and you know see we'll see what's up um, and Brian gave his perspective too. So when do you decide to take breaks from playing Legacy to avoid burnout, and how do you typically choose to do it? Well, I am somewhat taking a break right now, so I can answer this question. I didn't really choose this break. The break chose me, and that is because of work, family, variety of life things. I miss Legacy, though. I think that Magic Fest Atlanta is probably going to draw me back in. And I'm still keeping up enough where I can talk about it here on the podcast. I'm watching Anurag play and other streamers play often and certainly keeping up with it from an analytical standpoint. I just haven't been able to grind and haven't been able to go to any events. So, yeah, so for me, it's uh, unfortunately has been put on me. It's less about choosing to take a break. But I also think that I've been there before um, in terms of exploring some other things. It's less of being burned out from Legacy, though, when I do that and more of like a curiosity for other things and other formats. I got pretty hooked on draft when I um, got on my second pro tour. My first pro tour was a while ago, and I just totally botched the opportunity by not testing draft. But when I got on for the second time, got really into it, got hooked, largely because I wanted to be competitive. And for me... um, that's the thing that sometimes draws me away from Legacy is when other games or other types of ways of playing Magic provide different competitive outlets that, that Legacy does not. So for everything I love about Legacy, you, you you just simply can't play on the absolute biggest stage of Magic, which has always been a little bit frustrating for me, other than Pro Tour 25. And then also, you know, there's other there's there's ways that the game of magic isn't always totally fulfilling, and I think a lot of people can relate to this if they have other hobbies as well. So I do things like fish keeping, you know, fantasy sports. You guys know about my recent love of of pinball. So Wilson, are you not coming up to Casa de Cookie for SCG Syracuse? When is that? It's the weekend before Grand Prix Atlanta. I can't make any commitments right now on air, but let's talk about it. All right. We'll kick out Anurag for you. 
I had a very bad experience with burnout a couple of years ago. It was right before a Grand Prix and I was streaming at the time. And what I wanted to do just as like a project was to stream 100 matches before the Grand Prix with Miracles within like a two week time frame. And that's a lot of time. And I think I played way too much. What I can tell you, what I did learn is if you are burned out, don't play more magic that was not the solution and that's what i did and i just got so just like reviled with the thought of logging into moto and doing all this and that that like it it, it def- definitely like i think i don't even know like what happened i think i just like took a step back stopped playing magic and started playing like other games like league of legends a lot more and then like i eventually got back into the whole streaming aspect of it all at a later point so it's not like i gave up on legacy like i i played it like a, i just played it a lot 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 less Let's move on to the next question. Then after somewhat of a serious talk, we've got a question about last weekend's all-star magic card. I've heard very polarized reviews of Arkham's Astrolab. What do you guys think of, uh, sorry, what do you guys each think of it and why? Also, Veil of Summer has been seeing play in a multitude of decks such as Elves, Allurin, and Ad Nauseam Tendrils. Do you feel that with Veil and Ren, we could see a large resurgence of green decks Edging out the Grixis strategies, and this question is by Nix Ragazzo. I've actually seen Veil of Summer in other decks. I've seen it in Rug Delver and the Four Color Control decks as well, so it's making a pretty big impact on Legacy. As far as Arkham's Astrolabe, I mean, I've tried it in Storm. It's allowing these new Four Color Control decks to exist, and I'm sure there's other decks that it can be played in. In my opinion, it's more of a role player than anything else. It's a card that isn't always required. I know that some four-color control players have even said that they sided out in some matchups where they feel like they need to be a little bit more threat-dense instead of having filler cards. So while it does fix your mana in some matchups, especially against Delver strategies so you can have all four colors off basics, it's not really required. And I know it's it's a tough stance to take, but... You should play it in your deck. I'm just saying in some matchups, you're able to board it out if they're not attacking your mana base. Yeah, I kind of think Arkham's Astrolab is the real deal, and it uh, is absurdly powerful. I'm teetering towards calling it a design mistake. I mean, Prophetic Prism did top eight a pro tour at one point, and this effect is one mana. There's basically no cost to it anyways, because what, basics versus no basics... I mean, you can still fetch him. Prismatic Vista also recently got printed. So, you know, you have four basics in your deck that, you know, has very, very strenuous casting costs and you're able to fetch them all up. So I, I think the card is pretty silly, um, and especially in, in, in combination with a card like Red and Six. Four color mana bases that are very... Like, like the thing about Arkham's Astrolab that makes me upset is that, generally speaking, the weakness behind the four color mana base is that you don't have... Um, necessarily the consistency or the immunity to wasteland, but Arkham's Astrolab, Arkham's Astrolab allows you to deploy basics, which means you're not even really getting that punished by a wasteland. And then when you add Ren and Six on top of all of that, it's like a level of like immunity that I'm just I'm not. I think it might be too much. You know, like Julian posted a tweet on Twitter where he had a picture of like you know like the the Tyrannosaurus Rex with like lasers shooting out of it and so he's just saying like in a format where you get to do everything I feel like there needs to be some sort of drawbacks and Arkham's Astrolab certainly does mitigate that to a degree regarding Veil of Summer I will say I think personally that card is absolutely insane um I've been playing it a little bit in my four color miracles brew and it just does so much for so little like counters 
Tendrils of Agony. It's really good against Discard. It's really good against Abrupt Decay. It's really good against Pyroblast. These are all sort of things that, you know, I have always had on my radar to like try to build and play around. And I think Veil of Summer is a card that is, I mean, it fits the bill. So much to the point that I would, I, I've recently just been thinking about playing like Bant Miracles, you know, more counterbalance, more Sylvan Library, sort of got that thing going on and like being able to counter hit Miri's Guile. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we throw that in there too. I really, I really don't know. I'm just like saying, this is all spitballing. I've never actually tried any of this out. Um, but Veil of Summer would be the card that like pieces everything together. So you have some very strong words for Astrolab on Rug. And I would sort of like to go into more detail on that. Maybe this could also be followed up in future episodes. But, I mean, the way you described it is as if it's just totally broken. I mean, we could basically fill in Grizzlebrand into into this this card's uh, place in your sentence. And many people speak about Grizzlebrand that way. So for many listeners, I'm not sure does the, the community doesn't really, as a whole know about this right so I'm, I'm sort of being in the in the shoes of basically my shoes which is not somebody who grinds or anything and i'm listening to you talk about this innocuous little artifact as if it's just the bee's knees and i mean how did we get here to where this mana fixing thing is uh so good in your and other well-known legacy players opinions uh so here's the deal why where did this idea come from to begin with uh nicholas lalo who is i think he's swedish right he's definitely swedish he um is very well known for in the miracles community as the guy who just like picks random cards and then just like does really well with them he we call him the ham sandwich master because literally he can win with a ham sandwich and one of his projects that he picked up was arkham's astrolab and when red and six got spoiled you know i i asked and i you know just i was like hey this card's really good. I want to play it in my Miracles deck because I'm not really happy with how Miracles is doing right now. And testing continued and continued. And the deck did really well. I had three five O's in like a very back-to-back-to-back small period. Um, I think it's less of a surprise now. And maybe like I do attribute some of my wins to surprise factor. But um, like it, it just it just works. And I think what what's terrifying about the card to me is that there are just so many good cards you can play in Legacy. The only thing the only thing that's stopping you from playing them all is that you just like can't cast them all. So when you have a card like Arkham's Astrolab, which reads, "Hey, you can literally curve out Red and Six into Leovold into you know Jason to Gideon or whatever. I don't know. Pick some absurd you know mana cost here." It's just very exciting um, and, and you know, worth exploring in my mind. And I think the results definitely show when you see, like, last week's Star City results. Um, obviously, it's not the most broken thing in the world. You know, there are decks that can capitalize on this this sort of deck. For example, like, you know, the Mono Red Prison deck probably preys on something like, you know, the, these four-color decks. Not so much because, well, I mean, they just have all of it, right? They have the chalices, they have the blood moons and the trinity spheres to slow you down and then they've got Karns and Chandras to kill you. So, I don't know, that's that's just um it's it's not the end all be all, but it is very 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 good. Like I would like to address a couple uh, of your points. One is that you you do like to bring up this prophetic prism comparison, is that correct? Mhm. Mhm. When is it- when has that card ever been remotely playable in Legacy? It hasn't, but the difference between two and ma- two mana and one mana is like... I agree with Honorog. I think Wilson's taking a argumentative approach for being different 
I think. No, 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 no. I, I think that's a very good, like, the prophetic prism argument is like, it's like, where do you actually want that sort of effect? I'm not, I'm not, when I, when I cite prophetic prism, I'm not saying like, wow, look at this card, prophetic prism is broken in legacy. It's obviously not. I'm just saying that it is a good magic card. Okay. So you're digging your heels in on it being good, right? So that, that was sort of my point, though, is I have heard that comparison a few times from people. And to me, just, uh, just logically, if a card that is not playable is half of its mana, it doesn't really tell us much about how good that new card is going to be in a void, right? So I'm not saying that this is a uh, argument against Astrolab. It's really just I don't think that Prophetic Prism is a very good comparison for people to be making to this card if it's something that can be playable. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely buy that. I definitely see where you're coming from. If anything, I would say that that analogy is more of a reason to look into the card over anything else, right? Like, on first glance, you look at Astrolab, and you're like, I don't want this card. But if you can cite, like, you know, historical evidence or something that suggests that a card could be good, like, I mean, yeah, obviously there are some cards that have top-aided Pro Tours that are, you know, just not good, right? Sure. Well, well, again, if you cite Prophetic Prism, it, 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 may, it leads me away from the water, if you will. But... Well, I'll move on from that point. So the other part of this is, sure, this card obviously is playable in Legacy. It's doing things. Thinking about this from deck design theory, though, the card is only as good as adding additional colors makes it, right? Correct. So to me, it's really... Does the combination of these four colors in a deck right now uh, really push the deck way past, for example, three or two color decks in the format in power level? Um, and really what you're saying is is yes. Right now your argument is yes, largely because of things like Ren and Six, when green is really what benefits from this card because it's not a color that, has a lot of reasons to play it, but it has a, a couple or a few very good cards um, that require green. You named a couple, right? Renin Six, Leovold. Uh, the other one in this question, Veil of Summer, is also being played uh, in, in these decks. So that's an interesting way of thinking about this card, I think, is and not getting too overhyped on it, is you know, there are gonna be powerful decks in Legacy that don't care about that aren't restricted by color, in which case Astrolab probably is, is not relevant in those metagames and those situations. Because by itself, you're basically working just to be able to play the other cards in your deck. And the card itself just replaces itself, but it actually has a cost of, of mana. And from watching you play and just also just thinking about how the card works, isn't there also a cost in playing a bunch of basic lands in a color-intensive deck when you don't get the Astrolab? Does that create awkward situations for you? I would actually disagree with that. So I've been waiting for a pause because you've been hogging the microphone, Wilson. Uh, one of the beautiful things about playing Arkham's Astrolabe is that you're able to play these four-color pile decks and not be punished by what your opponents are trying to do to you because this isn't just about deck design theory. Magic is a game of give and take. And decks like Rug Delver, for example, have a really tough time if this four-color control deck is running six basic lands and it's beating you with the basic uh, land game because you have all these fetch lands for your perfect basics. 
they gave us that. They gave us Prismatic Vista. So you're now able to fetch the exact basic land you need at the exact right time. And then on top of having perfect basic mana, you also have Red and Six to recur your land. So even if you do need to get back a dual land, you can do so. And if it's a Lotus Petal for a turn, that's fine because you'll get it back on the next turn. And your deck is built to be this grindy engine. But it's become very difficult to hate on these four-color decks because you would traditionally beat them with Back to Basics or Blood Moon. But that, you can't do that anymore. They're running six basics. I've even seen some lists with seven. I mean, that's pushing it in my opinion. But six is pretty much the norm now. And I think if you do want to beat these back to base or these four color decks and can't use back to basics, I think people should revisit Winter Orb. I know that I said it in a previous episode, but I think Winter Orb is very good right now. Yeah, I posted that in another chat. I don't know how that's disagreeing with me, though. What are you disagreeing with? I'm disagreeing with you because you're saying that being a four-color deck with all these basics is a disadvantage. I think you're actually advantaged because you have all these basics. I didn't say it was an aggregate disadvantage to run the basics, so... Let's rewind the tape, Phil. You know, there are going to be powerful decks in Legacy that don't care about that aren't restricted by color, in which case Astrolab probably is, is not relevant in those metagames and those situations. Because by itself, you're basically working just to be able to play the other cards in your deck. And the card itself just replaces itself, but it actually has a cost of, of mana. And from watching you play and just also just thinking about how the card works, isn't there also a cost in playing a bunch of basic lands in a color-intensive deck when you don't get the Astrolab? Does that create awkward situations for you? Okay, what I, what I mean, what I mean. So my my take on it is that there is a fail rate. You right, you don't draw um, your Astrolab sometimes. But then I also so there there are a couple of ways to mitigate this failure. The first is obviously you maximize on cards like Ren and Six. I think that actually has been what I've slowly realized is that like my deck when I first started building it was like Miracles splashing green for Ren and Six, right, uh, and then red for like Pyroblast and Ren and Six. But then eventually what I ended up realizing was that. Red and green became the focus, and then white became the church, like the, the the secondary thing, right? So getting getting my mana online was more important than anything. So you look at Astrolab as one one reason, uh, one reason, one way to fix your mana. But also a card like Red and Six technically does fix your mana because you're constantly buying back your fetch lands, right? So that that brings you up to almost what six or seven cards. And then the earliest editions had even Mox Diamonds to fix them. Now I've sort of switched to just playing Astrolabs and Rens, but you know. That's still seven cards, eight cards that you could be playing. I don't know if I necessarily, you know, how like the exact numbers, but it's it takes a large chunk of the deck up. So you're you're very likely to see it, you know, consistently in your in your openers when it doesn't actually like come together though. Like when you don't have the Astrolab and when you don't have the um, the other spell. Yeah, that is kind of unfortunate, but you're still acting as like a blue soup, you know, cantrip cartel deck to sort of like bring all the pieces together. So you may not have it on, you know, turn two every time, but you will certainly find it by like turn three or four. Um, and like the splash colors are still splash colors, right? So I don't know how aggressive you want to get into the, into the, the non- like into the to the black based version that you know relies a little bit more on the the, the splash for abrupt decay and things like that, but in 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 um in the in the white version that I was trying, it was basically blue white, and then you had red and green just for the red and sixes. So you know you can still technically operate off the island and the plains, and then as soon as you draw your you know your supporting pieces, you can get the rest of your mana intact. You're not just like dead on the spot immediately. That's just been the the first level of experience and i'm not i'm not going to pretend like you know this is a solved 
puzzle. You know, this is this card just came out. This this combination that this was just discovered. You know, there's going to take a lot more testing. For example, the other day I was like, hey, why don't I just play like Karn the Great Construct and have an Astrolab in my sideboard and silly things like that, you know, but there's like what I'm trying to get is there's like a lot of design space that you can explore to make this uh, a little bit more reliable. I mean, Karn is obviously not the answer, but... uh, (laughs) You you want a Karn for an Astrolab? That's that's pretty cool. I want to see that. Who knows? Maybe maybe I'll make it work. But I mean, like even if you don't look at Astrolab in the context of this four color abomination, I've even thought about this deck in like the context of like something like Miracles, right? Where you you're severely skewed against your blue blue costed spells and your white white costed spells, and then you've got like you know occasionally you want to bring in red even against like maybe Delver decks, but you usually can't because you don't want to you make yourself open to Wasteland. Arkham's Astrolab seems kind of cool in this sort of three color deck where you you know you you can cast your mana intensive spells without ever exposing yourself to dan- the dangers of, of of mana denial. Also, for example, Arkham's Astrolab makes Rishadon Port look really bad. That that's something that I very very much enjoyed. Um, it's also there was another card that it that it didn't do too too well uh, that didn't do too well against it. But but um, yeah, and then also you get to make real adjustments to your mana base. For example, cutting from like two tundras and two volcanics shaving one of the volcanics for another basic seems pretty pretty admirable or not admirable but you know something that i would look forward to testing out that kind of thing so i don't know new card i think it's good enough to continue testing it's already put up some results that's kind of cool so we should uh, move on to the next question though if you guys are ready yes okay so matt abraham says hello Huge fan of all the hard work you fine gentlemen put into your passions, Magic and Cardboard Live. This pod- <laughs> Thank you. This podcast has easily become one of my favorites. Haha. And I look forward to all future episodes. Well, thank you so much, Matt. On to the questions. Number one. Does Wilson have a pet deck or preferred archetype? I have preferred archetypes during different seasons of my gaming life. So a year ago slash a year and a half ago, it was various flavors of Grixis Control that heavily used basic lands. During the top era, I was just pretty into miracles for a significant amount of time. But then there have been other eras where I've switched around uh, a lot and I didn't even have a single go-to deck. So those are the, probably the two longest eras. Um, there was a there was an ant era. I played a lot of ad nauseum tendrils for an extended period of time. That was fun too. Um, yeah, I guess the answer to this question is no. I do not have a single pet deck, but I can tell you it's not the epic storm. Matt's second question is, and I might take the wheels on this one. I play a version of blue white helm combo that is based on a miracles deck structure. I'm currently torn on whether the card disadvantage of enlightened tutor is worth it for the speed and consistency of a turn to rest in peace versus Narset, which is clearly slower, but applicable in more scenarios. Uh, what is the basic principle behind choosing this? And the, the mantra that I usually use is high floor, low ceiling, right? You want your cards to be, or I want my cards to usually be as consistent as possible, maybe at the cost of power, right? You look at the spectrum of consistency versus power. A lot of the times, um, 
you have to sacrifice one for the other, right? So Miracles, for example, will play Preordain, which is a one-mana card that gives you a little bit of card selection. It's very consistent in what it does. It's cheaper, it's easier to cast, versus like Grixis that might have Baleful Strix, but you know, it puts a body into play. It's much more powerful with the 1-1 Death Touch blocker, or even attacker, um, And it, but it only draws one card, right? So you can see how Preordain is a little less powerful, but more consistent, Versus Baleful Strix, blah, blah, blah. Um, so in this sort of situation, I heir to the card Narset. I'd actually argue that Enlightened Tutor probably makes more sense in a London Mulligan world. Uh, because you get to play heavier Haymakers. And if we've learned anything from Modern, it's that Haymakers can win games on their own. And Legacy's weird in the fact that people don't play as many of them as they should. Uh, I think we're still living in a pre-London Mulligan world where people are running more uh, diverse cards, which is something I like to do because I have less sideboard space. But if I ever played a deck that actually got to maximize its potential 15 cards, the Epic Storm sucks. Uh, kidding. Uh, you can- <laughs> Wilson's head went from like 90 degrees because he was falling asleep to like like a straight like 180, whatever. Like, like his ears perked up and everything it was beautiful. Erect. But uh, you could actually use your cards and you could play these heavier haymakers that win more matches. So I think cards like Enlightened Tutor, if they allow you to play more haymakers, might actually be worth testing again in this new world. I don't know. I still think that Legacy is a format that is so competitive, and the cards are so powerful that it is very easy to sort of min-max your operations. And when I say that, I mean you're able to maximize your own chances of succeeding while also minimizing your opponent's chances at succeeding it's very you're very efficient or very easy to do so right look at like just how cheap cards are costed like you've got like days force of will ancient tomb chalice the void these sort of things and so in in terms of consistency for that reason i think it's i think it's important to be able to actually like do your thing rather than sacrifice the card that is enlightened tutor you know go down on one card and then maybe just get like him to Torok, or not not him to Torok, but for example, like Snapcaster countered out of the game or something, you know? I don't know. Narset also is still a reasonably powerful card in all in all in all regards. So that's why I'm even more okay with a card like Narset. I mean, it certainly is less powerful than Enlightened Tutor, but Didn't you work on this deck with friend of the show, Joseph Percival Tremaine Lissette at some point? Uh, we talked about it. We bounced some ideas off each other, but I never, you know, actually I did try it, but this was back when, uh, I was, de- uh, sorry, this is back when I was trying to beat Grixis Delver that had, um, probe and therapy or Deathrite Shaman. Sorry. Was it, was this the giggle fest with him? I don't think he was playing Enlightened Tutor. I just remember that he, uh, I forgot. He made like some sick play or something. I thought that was kind of cool. Just so the listeners know, one time I was at a Grand Prix and, about 50 yards across the event hall, I saw Anurag leaping into the air, leaping, giggling audibly, very loudly. I could hear him across the hall, just just with great glee. And there was uh, Joseph Lissette standing in front of him, a slight grin on his face, but acting very calm. And it was it was it was a great moment. I have the picture in my brain. I wish that I could have recorded that. All right, but let's go on. So I want to build an extra deck for friends slash family to use if they want to try out the format. Do you guys have any recommendations that won't break the bank and hopefully demonstrates an aspect of the format that is worth highlighting? I would say death and taxes. It's reasonably priced. If they're coming from another format, it's not too degenerate. 
Uh, it is a skill-intensive deck, so they're probably not going to do super well with it up front, because in order to master Deathland Taxes, you have to get in a lot of reps. But I think we'll show them that, hey, creatures can be viable, you don't have to be playing something degenerate, and it has a pretty good game against the blue decks. Yeah, I would I would just hearken back to the three decks that I mentioned earlier, the two-color decks. I think they're a pretty diverse in terms of what they represent in the legacy format. So I'm talking about black green depths. I'm talking about blue white miracles and I'm talking about blue red Delver, right? You can build miracles probably with, with zero to one Tundra. If you really want to cards like Dovin's veto now make the white, uh, a little bit, the white splash, like a little, not, not splash, but the, the white a little bit better, you know, black green depths recently got, uh, nurturing heap land, which is the cycle land. Um, and there's also blooming marsh that that'll save you some dollars on bayous, and then Blue-Red Delver, I don't really know if there's any way to get around the the Steam Vents. Oh, Death's Shadow. That's another one, too. Death's Shadow, you can you actively want the Shocklands, so that's, a, that's another aspect that'll give you sort of a semblance of what tempo is like in Legacy. So, I don't know. I don't know about, like, strict combo, um, like, uh, like, like Sneak and Ad Nauseam Tendrils. I mean, you could always, like, Proxy decks, too, but I'm assuming we would want to play, like, either play in Sanctioned Player, we just don't like Proxies. Both are totally reasonable. I respect both those decisions. So, yeah, that, that's probably where I'd come from. Okay, so next question is from F711, a.k.a. Eric. I didn't know that. Maybe one of you guys knows that this is Eric. How, let's see. Yeah, do you choose a different legacy deck configuration for team events? So is there a different strategy for team events that have a legacy seat? And then another question is, do you guys get camera jitters when playing on-camera feature matches? So Anurag and I both have our specialty deck. But from what I've heard from other people is that they're more willing to play high variance decks or extremely low variance decks for team events. Because the high variance decks, they're tougher, like, you'll A, either likely win faster so you can help out your teammates, or B, the matchups are so night and day where you're either, like, done pretty quickly or you're not. I guess I already said that, but... uh, I don't know, like, people tend to play these decks because they, like, crush a lot of what shows up because there's a lot of people that show up with decks that they're not experienced with, at least for day one, and then that kind of changes for day two. But then there's the opposite strategy of taking four color. So it's a deck that is has a lot of play to it. There's not a lot of variance. So if you're a really good player, you'll be able to grind out value. I kind of look at it from a different... Well, some maybe somewhat of the same perspective, but I in terms of... Where I come from for team events, I would suggest playing something volatile, something that can kill your opponent, that can get those busted nut draws, because you can actually afford to lose. So I'm talking like Black Red Reanimator or Chalice decks, like maybe even like uh, Mono Red Stompy. That seems pretty good right now. But the reason I'm saying to do this is because you can actually afford some losses because you have a team that can pick up your losses. I think it you do need to like, you know, position strategically a little bit. Like if you're playing a very volatile deck, I don't think one of your partners has, um, or both your partners can also afford to play volatile decks because then you're just like almost gambling. I don't know. But I, I think um, in a world where... I mean, it also matters with like, you know, comfort level and experience in the format and things like that. You definitely can sacrifice like consistency and things like that. You don't necessarily have to play uh, like a tier one by, you know, definition deck or whatever. You can definitely play something that uh, is maybe a little bit more off the wall because you have losses to give up. You know, you can lose, but if your team wins, you still get the W. So 
something I thought of this past weekend was I don't know how we didn't see more burn because I know that the four color deck plays a lot of basics, but I'd imagine a deck like burn is actually very good against four color control. It doesn't care about uh, run and six recurring lands or anything like that. It's not trying to play a value game. It all it cares about doing is casting seven spells. And it seems like burn would be very good against these decks. Do you guys get camera jitters when playing on camp on camp feature matches? I used to. As a much younger gentleman, uh, my friends that I used to play test regularly with, because I only got into Magic Online in the last couple of years, so I played a lot of Paper Magic growing up, and they would say that I would have a uh, a give, like a poker expression, my hands, like I keep a pretty uh, strong face. I've always been really pretty good at not showing any emotions through my face, but my hands would start to shake. Just a small amount of shaking, and they say it would, it's always when I knew that I was going to win or... Uh, that I knew that I had a chance at winning, that my hands would have to shake, and they knew that I wanted the combo on the next turn. So over the course of years and years of playing Magic, you get one camera match and you get nervous, and you get another one, you're like, oh god, I remember how it was last time. What you need to do is just think, hey, this is just another match, one match at a time. That's actually a philosophy that I have going into every event. It's one match at a time. Don't look at it as I need to 8-1 day one, or I need to 5-0 the rest of the rounds. Don't think that way. Literally just look at what's in front of you, take it as it comes. And playing on camera doesn't matter. Who cares? You can go back and rewatch your play mistakes another time or whatever. But over time, you just, all that stuff goes away because it doesn't matter. Like if it's on camera or not, it's just a match of magic. Play it, think through your lines and make good decisions. That's a very good point. Like at the end of the day, so what you lose, that's it. You know what I mean? For me, I did have a pretty bad experience when I played against Reed uh, at GP Richmond in round 15. Um, I didn't play well. You know, I there was a game where I just took way too long for certain things, you know, like just like mechanical things. I play a lot on Moto, so I'm not used to shuffling. I'm not used to arranging my lands. I'm not used to those kind of things. Uh, but I will defend myself and say that I don't think I took too much time on the decisions themselves. It was just a very long, drawn-out game, and, you know, um, there were a lot of decisions to make, so that's why it looked like... But but the point is, as I could have done better, the problem for me is it's just like, to this day, I haven't actually gone back and read the Twitch chat. Like, I tried at one point to just like, all right, face the feedback, try to get better. What do I need to do? And like 30 seconds in, I stopped. I couldn't, I couldn't take it because it was just like... It's not going to be constructive feedback in the, in the Twitch. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, I know. But also part of me was curious to see like these people who don't know nothing about me, right? They see one thing and what are they going to think, right? And like that might be like some silly sort of destructive behavior. I don't know. But the, but the, but the, the point is, is like scrutiny does exist. What I've slowly like learned and realized is like is kind of what you're saying, right? Like it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. Don't, don't put that kind of pressure on yourself. Um, I know like Reed and I, we've played multiple times. I have a positive record against Reed. Um, like I know I can be competitive against him in a match of magic, but the, the sort of like pressure that, you know, you put on yourself is really just like that. It's just you yourself, you know, putting it on, on you. I don't know. That, that's not really like, that's like a weird way. It's like a mind game, a mental thing. You know what I mean? Like people don't really care nearly as much as we make it out to believe look at wasteland carl for example right like to this day like now i look at wasteland carl and i'm just like wow that's like you know a fun experience i i appreciate it in the moment i'm sure people gave him so much shit for not playing his you know wasteland uh, was against bbd or something right um but like it's not 
it's just a match of magic at the end of the day. You know, like you lose, you lose. Okay, cool. If you don't play perfectly, you make a misplay. We're humans. That's why magic is such a cool game because we can make mistakes, you know? I have an additional perspective. So let me start with a track and field metaphor. So I used to run the 800-meter race on the outdoor track that's two laps. Between 400 and 600 meters, so that's the, the first half of the second lap, I felt like that was probably the hardest part of that race. It was, it was well into the race, and it was before you could see the light at the end of the tunnel. So you really were feeling absolutely terrible by that point because you were giving it your all, but you also mentally still had a ways to go, and you really couldn't kick in the, the kick, the, the sprint at that point. So that's where I decided I would try to essentially win the race. And I would do that by mentally uh, putting myself in the shoes of all of the other runners, knowing that they were struggling the most at that point in the race. And all that is to say that that is how I view camera matches and magic. I tried to, instead of thinking about myself and doing all these things that you guys are describing to make myself less nervous... I put myself in the shoes of the opponent sitting across from me and imagine, hey, since we're having this conversation now, since I feel like this, since everybody feels like this, they are incredibly nervous. Uh, this is when you know, they have been the most nervous at this tournament. They're sitting there. They're wondering what everybody thinks of them. So rather than have any idea of, of myself in the moment, um, I try to, to capitalize on that. And um, early on in my Magic career, I was sort of, I was sort of like what Bryant was describing. I was more nervous in camera matches, but since I think having this mentality, I think I perform better in camera matches. I think that my win rate in camera matches in the last couple of years has gone up tremendously. Um, at Pro Tour Ixlan, I won, what, I don't remember what it was now. Maybe I had parts of maybe four matches during that tournament on camera, won all of them. Um, of course, it's not always going to happen that way. But I do think that everybody, a lot of people play differently on camera. I think a lot of people make unnecessarily conservative plays because they want to make the right play for the audience and not be mocked for something that might be a little bit risky, but maybe the right play in a given situation. That's sort of a trend that I notice. So all that being said, I think my advice for this when camera matches happen is always consider your opponent and their mental state in that situation and just recognize that they're probably really nervous too. Yeah. I think the other one last thing that I want to mention or tack on to this is like, if you're in the moment and things have gone wrong, right? Like you get a little tilted, you make a little mistake. This takes training and a little bit of discipline. And it's part of magic that, you know, people don't talk about a lot because, you know, feature matches, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's not really magic, but it actually is a part of magic. And even more so now it'll be a bigger part of magic. But the, the thing is, when you make a mistake, you have to be able to tell yourself, you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be, you know, just say, look, I made a mistake. Now I need to stop worrying about that I made a mistake because it's been made. It's been done. We can analyze it at a later time to win this match. What is the next best play that I can make? Because people, I mean... Like, honestly, like, you make misplays all the time, right? Like, what do you, sorry, that that is not, I don't mean that, but people make misplays all the time, right? So, um, I mean, how do you recover in a regular match? 
you know, when you make a misplay. Why would a camera being over your head, you know, change that sort of process? So I think that sort of discipline where you need to realize that like, it's okay, you made a mistake, it happened, move on is probably like the, I mean, from my perspective, that's what I would, like the lasting message that I would like to to get across. But one of my favorite things about feature matches is something that Anurag mentioned, and it's going back to read the Twitch chat. I'd like to know what people are saying. I find it to be fun. It's even more funny when things get more ridiculous. Hey, Wilson. What's up? Do you think there is any home for Thalia, Heretic, Cathar, the format in a current or future deck? As mana bases get even more greedy, I feel like an accelerated or turned on turn two, big Thalia would be backbreaking to most tier one decks, as it hurts even the decks that try to run basics for stability. A few white Eldrazi taxes lists have tried it to some success, but I'm not sure that's a real deck. Yeah, this question is by Tyler. Uh, Tyler, thank you for the question. My, I have an answer, but it's not really a good answer. You're not going to like it. I'll give it to you, whatever. I have never had this card on my mind, on my radar, on anything. I will say, though, that the White Eldrazi Taxes list is probably pretty good. Um, oh, I thought I, you were going to say, he played in Miracles. Yeah, I, I know, but I've seen a lot of like people talk about it, and you know, I mean, like, I, I think it's worth continuing to test. The problem is, is like, look at the, the constraints in deck design, right? Like, if you want to play Thalia on turn two, you have to have some sort of mana ramp. That means you're either locked into like Ancient Tomb or Chrome Mox or like some sort of Mox Diamond. And then from that point, it's just like the deck sort of starts building itself, right? These are some sort of like, I don't know, restrictions. I guess you could argue like Hierarch. Uh, Birds of Paradise, those kind of cards are another way to take a look into it. But really, like the kind of decks that you could build to leverage Thalia, Heretic, Cathar are going to be defined by the type of mana acceleration. I think they're going to be, this is just theory, I'm spitballing, but they will be defined by the type of mana acceleration that you decide to employ. So I've played two copies of this card in my Maverick list and tested that extensively. And it was okay, but at the end of the day, I decided that there were better cards, and since I had played that card, Knight of Autumn was printed, and I'm, I'm not sure that there are enough uh, slots for me to, to play it again, but it was all right. I've also played somewhere uh, in the range of... I, I've played something like 10 leagues with White, Eldrazi, and Taxes. Did you guys know that? I did not know that. Oh, wait, no, I do remember this, yes. I remember this. Was, was this before the Pro Tour? So there, there may, there may be a five zero fl list floating around out there on the interwebs, and yeah, it's obviously really good in that deck. But that deck isn't that great. I think it is better than not being a real deck, though. It was fine in that meta, but this is a different meta, so who knows? But thanks, Tyler. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I think this is going to be the last question of the night. Greeting from Portugal. First of all, your podcast is great, and I missed hearing the Wilson Smooth Hunter voice in my feed. Regarding four-color loam, the deck has been lingering around for some years, but never gained big traction. Do you have any opinions on why? Um, since the new printing of Renin 6, loam has become a bit obsolete in all decks besides lands. Do you think that this type of deck needs a big revision going forward? So I think that uh, a, a large element of these, some of these loam decks is uh, utilizing Wasteland as a mana denial plan. These Ren and Six decks are not really doing that as a primary game plan. They're more like a, a card advantage, mid-range soup engine. And in those decks, Ren and Six is better than loam. 
And the thing is, Loam is not very well positioned if the strategy is man denial because of all of these decks running basic lands, right? So because the four color lists of choice now are basic heavy, and then you've got the other segments of the format that are also immune to it, I really just don't think it's a, a really good metagame for for Life in the Loam. Yeah, I don't know. I've always had a weird opinion of four color loam. I just, in my eyes, I know that there are going to be better four color loam players out there that are going to disagree with me. And like my, my, and you know what? I'll be honest with you. My opinion definitely has changed over time. Like I used to think four color loam was just kind of like a very medium deck. Like it didn't really do anything too well. But lately, and like especially like the play pattern, I think that's what bugged me, right? You leverage, you you rely a little bit too much on Mox Diamond to sort of put a two-mana threat into play, and then you hope that that two-mana threat can snowball into another threat while you lock your opponent out. And then like, if any of this stuff goes wrong at any point, then I feel like it's very easy for someone to turn the tables on you. But I've lately learned that the deck is much more than that. The, I, I think the reason that I, that most people don't play it, though, is because... I mean, can I be honest with you? Like, well, I, fun fun is a subjective thing, but like, what's the reason to switch to this deck? I know like Bob played it for a while and Bob is the kind of guy who will always like play, you know, the most competitive, what he thinks is the most competitive deck. But, but like, I mean, also like the lack of brainstorm is kind of a big, I don't know. Like, I'm, I, I don't really have a real reason for you. I mean, I, I do agree that it might not necessarily be the best positioned in the metagame right now, but, but even then it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this deck does better than other decks. Let's wrap it up. Let's go to bed. It's 12.40 a.m. Let's get <laughs> hey, the fuck out of here. That's one way to do it. I'm Good just night. Stop. See ya. Take care. Thank you for listening. You're all beautiful. I thought he was going to stop, so I went. God damn it. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Phil. Oh, my God. Fuck you. Nice. Also, Honor Egg sucks.